In this episode, we'll be doing TPOS 1835 to 1848. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1835 Berserker, written by Teller of Tall Tales. The brass statue of a lone human stood guard solemn at the main entrance of the Danheim shuttle. The figure stood with their fingers laced together atop the large Nordic axe as they gazed down the busy, hovergraft-filled street and parkway, leading to the doors they'd gone. Those who lived here after the collapse paid the statue no mind. After all, every shuttle port had a statue outright. Why was this one so special? Well, my sweet summer child, Allow me to tell you the story of a man only known by time, the Berserk. The Megalomanians were an empire built on the backs of slaves. They conquered and enslaved any plan deemed necessary for their test. A brutal bombardment with biological weapons that turned sentience into mindless, bloodthirsty animals that clawed and bit at those they had once called friends and family. But there was one caveat. Like any disease, many individuals of many species would be naturally immune to it by sheer chance. The ideal state if they could survive the infected. I remember the feeling of hopelessness in the shuttle port as the hundreds of still sentient beings gathered there to evacuate. Hopeful, the shuttles would slip past the slaves. You could hear the screams and roars in the infected closing in through the thick plastic walls. I remember the human that burst through the doors, axe in hand, covered in viscera. I thought he was there to kill us, but no. He marched up to the unoccupied front desk and picked up the intercom microphone before speaking. They know where we are. You can hear them gliding closer, can't you? I know you're scared. I know you all want this to be a very bad dream, but this is real, and I need you to listen to me. Looking out over the silent and somber gathering, the human nodded softly before speaking again. The shuttle gates are armored, and each one can hold 30 of you. It may seem like I'm asking you to lock yourselves in a cage. Well, I am, but not for the reason you think. He pounded on the bottom of his axe handle against the tires, making an echoing thunk noise. I'll hold them off as long as possible. Try to thin the herd as much as possible until the shuttles get here. Please head to the nearest gate and lock both doors behind you, in case any get past me. There was hesitation as the human set down the microphone. Then, seemingly as one, we stood and filed into the armored gate rooms between the landing pad and shuttle port. The things we heard, the things we saw, they're unforgettable. One of the shuttle port security guards had pulled up a feed of the entrance so we could watch, and uh, many did out of morbid curiosity. The human wrapped a chain around the handles of the swinging doors of the shuttle port as he stepped outside, an extra hurt for the infected to jump before turning to face the street behind him. He reached up to his neck and yanked something away, wrapping it around his hand as he hefted these axe. The infected came as a wave, an unyielding tide of slavering, shrieking bodies that crashed over the human, briefly obscuring him from view as he swung his axe for the first time. For minutes, all we saw was the occasional glint of that massive, curved axe head as it cleaved flesh and split 
backbone would practice elegant ease. Then, slowly, a small opening in the tide of body showed the human's dire situation. They'd lost an eye, blood streamed from the socket and down their face, which was twisted in an expression of burning rage. His clothing was torn, one leg was shaking and unsteady, where it had been gashed open. Though many bodies lay piled around the human, the tide of infected seemed endless, and the human was faltering. The axe swung clumsily, biting deep, and not as deep as before, as he felt infected being after infected being. Eventually, the tide swallowed him, making him disappear from view as we watched the screaming masses slam against the door to the airport, that feeling of hopelessness settling in again. Then, there was a sound, a sound that didn't belong to the screaming masses. A roar bellowed from deep with the writhing horde of monsters. It grew louder and louder until one could swear they felt it shaking the very earth as half a dozen of the infected were flung skyward as the human burst into view amongst the horde. The roar came from them as he with renewed vigor, the axe came swinging down, cleaving through four of the infected in a single blow. The human fought and fought and then fought some more as a whole began to thin, felled by the human's axe and burning fury. With each swing, the horde became thinner and thinner, until at last the axe's head put deep into the last infected's head, before he was yanked loose. The human stood alone then, amongst the carnage and bodies that lie knee-deep around him. He gazed off into the now silent distance. His arms had darkened to a deep purple color, his eye long done bleeding as the human slowly fell to their knees. Putting his hands wide apart on the axe's half, he raised it above his head, horizontal to the ground. Then he slumped forward, axe still clamped in his lifeless hands. I heard the shuttle touch down outside with a deafening silence that fell with the heat. I placed a bundle of roses I had brought to the statue's We'd only found out why the human had done it after he died. A journal found in the apartments registered in his name. The first page, a prayer to the long-forgotten God. Now, embossed on the plant between the statue's feet. Oh, Father, make me fast and accurate. Let my blade strike true. Make my arms swifter than any who would seek to destroy me. Grant me victory over my foes. And when my death comes, let not my last thought be if I had owned, but rather let the halls of Valhalla ring with my name, and let me die atop a mountain of enemy corpses. Skull! End of story. Story number two. Bones of the Ancients. Written by Uncomfy Unicorn. So, Cuba. But artifacts do you hold within your museums? Zathlor, a carcolition, lost his human companion, Juma, as they entered one such museum. Carcolitions resembled a horrifying cross between an octopus, a crab, and a hot air balloon, with multiple centipede-like mouthparts under a large main eye, four smaller eyes and flexible stalks around. To either side of the insectoid jaw, 
but too small manipulate, similar to the claws of a coconut crab. And near there was a pair of long, flexible tentacles with small hairs on the ends, an evolutionary remnant of venom-injecting spines now used for sensory purposes. Above all, that was a large fleshy sack covered in veins running with blue blood, the sack containing a naturally formed gas mixture that keeps each one afloat. They are able to release or create the gas to change altitude and find Earth's nitrogen-rich atmosphere quite comfortable, the warm tropics even more so. Well, uh, there's the old pots and tools ancient civilizations made, old paintings and statues, cool rocks and old technology, and some cool rooms where you can look at stuff from space, like meteorites. But coolest of all are the fossils. There are whole rooms dedicated to them, and they are crazy. The human Jim replied eagerly. Fossils? You mean old bones and exoskeletons? How could those be interesting? Nothing larger than a Terran mammoth has ever been found on any planet, and those are simple mollusks and crustaceans. Zathalor replied, his eye stalks extending slightly in confusion. Oh no, some animals got enormous, the dinosaurs especially. There were horrific carnivores larger than a truck, and herbivores so big they could stand taller than a three-story building. Jim smiled excitedly, anticipating his friend's reaction to the ancient colossus. Zathlaw's eye stalks extended so far, Jim was almost worried that they would pop off as the aliens sat in silence for a few moments. Wait, you said how big? Nah, but nothing like that could ever survive. The weight would just shatter any exoskeleton it had, or cause an endoskeleton to crumple the moment it tried to stand. Zathlaw was slightly agitated at this point, trying to figure out how something so big could exist. As the two made it inside, Zathlaw froze as the titanous skeleton of what a pedestal labeled a Triceratops stood locked in battle with an even larger beast, a Tyrannosaurus Rex. The horned beast seemed to be bellowing in defiance at the roaring predator before it. The size of the monster's large teeth making Zathlaw almost expel his gases through a propulsion siphon of terror. But it was what he could see behind them that truly astonished him. Multiple skeletons of enormous beasts, some in front of aquatic backgrounds, some soaring above, smaller ones darting between the legs of one with a ribcage large enough to hold the largest fossilized creature found on his planet. A tail so long that it almost reached the opposite wall as its neck extended to the point the head would be level with the second floor above. And each one had a plaque, a photo, something explaining what it was. So it was much more extreme than the Ice Age fossils he had seen previously, which were impressive in and of themselves. What? Zelthor tried to speak, but he could barely fire his neuron clusters as he gazed at the titans surrounding him, all posed to be eating, fighting, moving, living. It was as if it was gazing through time itself. He could almost see the flesh covering the bone, the blood gushing from lethal wounds as predator and prey exchanged blows. The screeching and roaring of an ancient world lost to the cataclysmic event. What killed them? Zalthor finally said. A few things, changing climate, volcanic eruptions, but the final blow was an asteroid six miles in diameter. It was the most recent mass extinction. Come on, 
There's supposed to be a film about how the dinosaurs might have lived. Let's go watch, Jim said, far too casually. Wait, what do you mean the most recent mass extinction? How many has your planet had? Zalthor exclaimed, following Jim to the theater. By both six. Now shush, it's about to start, Jim said, putting one finger over these fleshy mouth covering. Zathlor clung to the perch extended from the seat, all five eyes fixed on the central area where the hologram projector was situated. The next half an hour was a blur. Enormous scale, bird and feathered creatures raced across the screen, some fighting, some raising children, some moving in herds, some putting on a mating display. Some swam, some walked, some ran, some climbed, some flew. But to see these giants essentially brought back to life in front of him, to feel the thunderous bellows shake the very room, was something he could never forget. After finishing exploring the museum, they brought some fossils at the gift shop. Nothing too crazy, just some small bone fragments and an ammonite bracelet, which Zathlor had wrapped tightly around one of his tentacles. It wasn't that crazy to Jim, but to Zathlor, it was insane. That they would sell these... These... These bones of the ancients. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1836 Children of Men Written by Zephy Landantis The monarch sat on these thrones observing the table as it displayed the happenings of his multi-galactic kingdom's latest war unfold in real time. He leaned back into the comfortable back padding and smiled with child-like glee. They were approaching his favorite moment. Thousands of similar battles had been fought in his time, and they had all ended with the same result. Not victory, surrender. Victory was irrelevant. They had already lost by the time this phase of the strategy began. Surrender was pointless. The enemy could surrender or they could suffer defeat. It held no importance to his personal favorite moment. Soon, he zoomed in on a star system, all the way to the front lines on the only populated planet. It was a recent colony. The relatively newly ascended ape descendants had named it June for some irrelevant reason. Probably a popular cultural reference that would be lost in the monarch of the kingdom that spanned three galaxies. He grudgingly had to admit that the monkey people, with their five-digit manipulators and their weirdly scavenger predator-inspired physique, were exceedingly good at adapting to the tactics of the invading fleets. They should have suffered devastating losses from day one of the invasion all the way up to the final battle at their cradle world, where the final blow to their will would be done, and they would succumb to the eternal servitude of the kingdom, not by vote or reason, simply because there was no reason to fight the invaders anymore. Alterations had been made necessary for this invasion, however, since the apes or humans had been so skilled at avoiding having their forces annihilated, at every encounter. So now, on the third year of the invasion, this June would be the tenth con for the humans to lose. This would be where their spirit would break, where his troops would ride the human tenacity like an ugly concubine. It was time 
he found the human commander and zoomed in on the female. She wore a small hammer as a pendant around her neck. The monarch giggled audibly. This was going to be perfect. He zoomed out to watch as the skies over the battlefield split and a wagon pulled by two goats broke through the clouds. The driver swinging a short-handled battle hammer over his head with lightning arcing from the hammer's oversized head. The human commander's face lit up, first in disbelief, then in realization, and then, finally, in horror, as the human god of thunder, the deity whose idol she wore around her neck, plowed through the human ranks, spreading death, armor, and bodies left and right as she never stopped swinging that hammer. Behind him, another of humanity's gods fielded against his former supporters, as his bronze armor reflected in the light of the dawning star. His sandals were covered in blood and dirt as his oversized round shield and spear, three times his own height, simultaneously beheaded whoever was within range and kept the ones with just small measure of survival instinct at bay. But that look, the one on the commander's face, the look when she realized, as all of the stupid apes would, that their gods have forsaken them turned to their enemy and battered against them. This was the single most amusing thing to the monarch. For that look, he would launch a thousand fleets. Because of that look, he had raised a thousand fleets. In anticipation of that single look, he had turned hundreds of thousands of gods against the peoples that followed them. He never ceased to be amazed at how easy it truly was. It had been a hundred lifetimes, he no longer counted time in anything shorter than that, beyond even 200 lifetimes since the scientists of his father's kingdom had come to one simple conclusion. Science and theology were not mutually exclusive. They were, in fact, codependents. The laws of physics were real, but like all other laws, they were formulated and written down by someone before they became laws. Those someones were the gods. Each sentient species had their own gods. Some had thousands, others had one. But they all followed the same path. An early stage of civilization that which could not be explained, otherwise would be attested to the gods. Drought, gods. Fertility, gods. Disease, gods. Fortune, good, bad, or financial, gods. Then as every civilization ventured into the age of enlightenment and science, their gods would write the laws that made each occurrence tangible and logical for their people to discover. None, not even his own species, had avoided the seemingly inevitable outcome. As scientific knowledge grew, the faith in the gods fell with it, the devotion and the power the gods gained from prayers, belief and dedication. His father had discovered that their gods did exist, weakened and malleable, so he offered them a deal. Teach me how to summon any god and how to give them my son eternal life. In return, I'll rebuild your temples and your followers and multiply their numbers beyond what you've ever had. The gods, starved and desperate, had agreed. In time, he had discovered other species, other sentients, with their own gods, forgotten and starved. He had had his scholars study their history, learn the name and the domain of every god these aliens had forgotten, and then he had his people read. Procreation became the maker of nobility. Pedigree was irrelevant. Only numbers mattered. 
in order to turn a god from its own people, he had to make an unrefusable offer. The total population of humanity is 21 billion people, he had said to Hades. Divide that by the literal hundreds of colleagues you have, and there is barely 100 million humans per god. I guarantee you 5 billion dedicated followers with an average growth of 5% per lifetime. He took the deal. They all did. It is a matter of numerals. This time, as every time before this, the numbers won. He didn't need a billion soldiers. He had 300 gods. It had become a principle for him to only use the species' own gods against him. A personal message of spite. It was also a very effective way of rallying the gods against their old followers. Show no mercy to those who would abandon you. Let your wrath reign unhindered. The shock of betrayal was, for the most part, widely effective, breaking the spirits of the defenders. This time, the pesky monkeys would break and surrender. He watched as the carnage on the battlefield continued, watched as the humans pulled back. He reigned in the two harbingers of destruction, waiting for the surrender. What he got in return was an orbital nuclear strike from the human fleet, as the remaining populace was evacuated. It would be at least a half a lifetime before the two gods had bled up enough radiation to show themselves to their followers again. The mirth bled off his face as he rose from the throne and headed into the adjacent summoning room. Athena! Odin! Ogma! I call you by your name! Buddha! Thoth! Lousy! I summon you to my presence. The circle in the middle of the floor lit up. If he had summoned a single god, it would have filled the entire circle. But with six summoned at once, they would share the space. The figures faded into existence, the ritual complete. Tell me, he was furious, why the humans nuked the planet. Why fight if you can leave, Buddha mused. Athena looked at the former human and scoffed. You introduced a weapon they did not recognize, gods. They must have tested to see if they could be destroyed. Ogma and Odin nodded in agreement. Lozi, your perception. He was not going to believe that some primate descendants, who just happened to be gifted with opposable thumbs, would fight their own gods. Maybe you are asking the wrong deities, the ox-riding male suggested. I feel that Yahweh would have a better insight. She was, after all, the one who had the strongest following. Thoth. I have joined your ranks. My end of the bargain has been fulfilled. Be gone, he bellowed, and stared hatefully at the figures as they faded from view. They'd offered no answer, none that held value. He headed back into the throne room and conscripted another five billion soldiers to join the gods on the battlefield. The humans would fall. Satisfied with his genius solution of solving the problem by throwing more bodies at it, he dumped himself on the throne and summoned his favorite five concubines. He needed a break from thinking. Fathering another generation was the right kind of break. The single figure that entered the throne room was not what he had in mind. It resembled a human female, seemingly naked, but the coloration suggested a garment woven from a fabric of existence itself covering the entire body up to the neckline. The long flowing black hair suggested that there were soft curves, but his eyes would not allow him to focus on them. 
The female slowly walked across the floor towards the throne, ignoring everything in the room, including him. Who are you? Where are my breeders? How did you get in here? The woman stopped just short of the command table and looked at him. Her eyes resembled the soft glow of newborn stars. You do not know me, as you have never met my likeness before. Her voice was soft, like running a gentle mist across the silky satin veil of comfort that envelops you just before you doze off to sleep. Every galaxy you have conquered has had numerous sentients in them, each with their own gods. This has led your scientists and priests to false conclusions. She offered a soft smile. He was reminded of his mother's smile when she was nursing. Your breeders are dead, as are the soldiers that guarded your person, along with everyone who has laid eyes on me. As for your last question, I walked. The audacity told him that she was divine, that along with her portrayal of his son, he had summoned enough gods in his time to know that their first appearance was meant to install awe in the spectre. He scoffed, let it go, woman. Tell me your name so we can do business. Her smile did not fade. It remained as soft and caring as it had been when she had first revealed it to him. You have nothing I want. As for my name, I have none. The humans have called me by many names and concepts, but they have never named me. Then why are you here? He did not have neither the time nor patience to deal with some rogue unnamed god. I am here, child, to warn you. Back off the humans, recall your fleets, and bring your converted gods with you. This will not end well if you don't. He ignored the underlying threat in her voice. This ends like every encounter before it. I will be victorious, and this time I will add an entire galaxy to my claim with one war. He laughed at her. It had been too good an opportunity when his scouts had found the humans. A single species of sentience, alone in an entire galaxy. The amount of resources and planets available for his people to propagate through. He would have the population to turn the gods of a million species from a single swirling mass of stars. He waved a hand at the ceiling. On cue, his divine protector entered from the side door. A majestic white beard obfuscated his jazz and in his loosely slung robe around his waist held itself in place with the pinned horn of a titan. In his left hand a javelin of pure light, complaining audibly about being constrained. Zeus walked in nonchalantly hurling the lightning at the woman's back. The bolt hit a square in the spine, where it solidified and clattered to the floor harmlessly. The god-king froze in his stride. The newly drawn lightning javelin fizzled out the nothing as he closed his eyes, bowed his head, and kneeled. She had yet to acknowledge the existence of the traitor. Your mistake, she spoke with a calm and patient tone was to assume that the gods created life. They didn't. Life is created by happenstance, and once life becomes self-aware, it seeks answers. She turned her head slightly and watched as Ra faded into view next to Zeus. The eagle-headed god knelt down immediately, head bowed. The answers, her tone did not soothe the monarch anymore, were given by the gods life created. She looked him straight in the eyes. 
You have not turned the fathers of humanity against them. You have merely occupied the attention of errant children, who failed to learn from their elders. That patience is a virtue, and that power is an illusion. She turned and walked over to the two leading figureheads of their respective religion. Ah, my dear, she said as she cupped the cheek of the god with her palm, a gentle caress. Did you create man? The god of life did not look up. He meekly mumbled a response. No, man created me. She turned to face the king. I can ask that question to every god in existence, and they will all give the same answer. You have nothing I want, because I care not for prayers and temples. I have given life to every galaxy in existence, multiple seeds to build a garden of harmony and existence. The gods report to me on the happening in the worlds that birthed them. I keep the humans to myself, kept them isolated, alone in the galaxy, because I wanted to see what happened when life itself became gods. I created them, formed them through challenges and adversity. They do not seek divine redemption, because the gods cannot save them. They know that the only way to survive when you are alone is by sheer will and fortitude. As the king realized who she was, he began frantically searching for a name on his infosphere. If he could name her, she could be summoned. Those summoned, sir. I ask you one final time. Withdraw your fleets, or watch as the children of men burn your empire down. As he looked up from his screen, he found the starry visage that he had mistakenly thought was her eyes focused on him. She slowly revealed her true gaze to him letting him realize that he was, in fact, staring creation in the face. She was unnamed because no one could fathom her existence. She had created existence itself. As she revealed the truth to him, his mind shattered, unable to comprehend the all-encompassing knowledge of everything. Yet lived a thousand lifetimes, she had lived them all. She had created humanity, not to pray or worship gods, but to become gods. They would destroy him, his kingdom, and then every god there was. She showed him the final battle, millions of lifetimes in the future. She had built a species of longevity. She had made them survivors. The gods that they had made would fall, and in the end, so would she. All that would be left, the children. Of men. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1837. Story number one. Make yourselves indispensable. Written by Bonto Sil. An army marches on its stomach. What? I'm quoting an old human general. Ambassador Lion Zaiho peers over the table at his adversity. Wasn't exactly the right word. Too, uh, adversarial he supposes. Opponent was a better term. In any case, the Hazen met his gaze with an unwavering intensity. This meeting was formality. The diplomatic AIs had already hashed the deal out, but there was something to be said for an in-person delivery. And the sinews of war are infinite money. Zaiho lets himself look impressed. Cicero, you did your homework. For a moment, there's silence over the table. Zaiho wavers for a moment, 
then decides to break character. If there was any reason to still let humans into the diplomatic corps, this was it. Are you sure you want to go down this path? You know what this means for your people. I know what it means for mine. All you have to do is call off your invasion. The hazen deflates, four tentacles setting themselves down on the tabletop in a careful pattern. It means something unimportant right now. I do. You would sacrifice so much for a protectorate you didn't hold a scant generation ago. Zaiho nods once. Humans don't abandon their allies. Then we'll see who breaks first. Peace be with you, human. A cutting, ironic remark. Zaiho can appreciate the parting shot, if nothing else. Solar Federation total trade embargo with Hazen Collective. Delurium prices skyrocket as Hazen Justical War begins in earnest. Ignis stock index tumbles in record sell-off of agricultural assets. Pestle's stomach growls. He clamps down on his hunger, clutching his heavy rifle until it hurts. He hadn't gotten anything in the last two days. Normally, no problem. He could deal. If it wasn't only one meal between the last two days' stretch without meals. If the last convoy hadn't shown up with the ration crates half filled with foam to make it seem full. If he could sit and rest for a day without an airstrike or ambush. If he could just eat something. This invasion was supposed to be easy. A weak opponent, an ally unwilling to protect them with their own bodies. But then, then, he ended up here. There was a village up ahead. He can see it tucked away, nestled in the valley they were supposed to be attacking tomorrow morning. Lights glow in the gloomy night. They weren't afraid of artillery. They had active protection systems, denser than anything they'd ever seen outside of consulate bunkers. They also probably had food, hot food, with spices and fat and warm drinks. He catches himself salivating at the thought. Almost catches himself starting to walk towards them. Gods below, who'd be so easy? A cly into the valley. They write gestures, the right words. A cly into the valley. The right gestures, the right words. And he'd be fed, even if he were shot. He wouldn't be starving anymore. His rifle clatters to the ground. He was alone. The internal surveillance systems had run out of batteries only a week into the advance. Sure, maybe they'd take the town in the morning. Maybe he'd be discovered, captured, dragged up into a court with a gun to his head. His fate sealed from that moment onwards. He started walking, shucking off his armor. If he was going to be executed, he at least wanted one Full stomach before it happened. Belai puts one hand out, shoving the hazen woman back with one hand, the power reinforcement in his suit whirring. She hisses, something vulgar at him, and he has to fortitude to ignore it. The food storehouse was built like a bunker, low and square, fitting enough for the siege it found itself under. Just hold, soldiers, his commander intones. Easy for him to say. He was safe. Secured away in some deep control bunker, maybe even in an orbiting ship. And he was probably eating right now. Senior officers still got military rations. Junior enlisted. Shed out of luck. Get what you can find. He digs in against another surge of the crowd, gently pushing away a couple who tries to snatch away his rifle. They were just desperate. He bore them no ill will. No need to hurt them. 
Was he desperate? Probably. He hadn't eaten a square meal in a week. He refused to loot, couldn't really steal without being punished. As desperate as these people. He takes a look at them. Once civilized people given in to animal desperation. Their faces twist with hate and rage at him. He was an obstacle standing between them and survival. And who was he to deny them that? Maybe. Maybe if he let them in, he could eat. The next time the crowd searches, he goes with them. The hazen looks gone. The eye, the plate, and the snacks on the table between themselves and the zaiho with an undistinguished envy. Help yourself. It was obvious the hazen hadn't eaten in some time. But Ziho watches without judgment. Maybe even a little sympathy. They finish and collect themselves, staring off into space before speaking. This is how you win, isn't it? You make yourselves indispensable somehow. Food, or yetrium, or heavy water or something. He nods once. Yes, that's how we win. No number of guns are useful if you can't feed your operators. The hazen lets out a sigh. They sound defeated. Rightfully so. Even then, Ziho can't summon up any sense of victory. Just pity. It was a terrible thing you did, you know. My people will feel pain for generations. He lowers his head. I know. And if it makes you feel better, I am truly sorry that path was chosen by both of us. I will not justify it. I will not make excuses. I can only say that I think it was the right thing. He holds his pose for a couple more moments before looking up. Do you accept? The Hazen Collective accepts your offer to entry into the Solar Federation. They say in a flat monotone. Food aid shipments will begin tomorrow. Humanity doesn't abandon its allies. He stands and bows to the Hazen representative. As gentle a smile as he can manage on his face. Maybe it was patronizing. Maybe it was comforting. Either would do. Peace be with you, representative. End of story. Story number two. Po-te-toes. Written by Dragonson04. The human home world of Earth is a fascinating place. By galactic standards, it is amongst the harshest place to ever produce sentient life, let alone an intelligent and star-bearing civilization. Describing the planet as extreme doesn't quite do it justice. The humans are not really specialized in any field of study or work, but they can turn their hands to anything with the right training. They are nothing, if not adaptable. They are, in a word, tough, various levels, and different kinds of tough, but tough nonetheless. As a botanist, however, I'm more interested in telling you of a particular plot that grows on Earth. As no doubt you've already read or heard hundreds of stories about the all manner of human behavior. With thousands of varieties of native to a single mountain range and their ability to grow almost anywhere on earth, they are incredible. Humans call it a potato, or the humble potato, if you want to be a bit poetic about it. For something that grows on a death world, it is completely benign, even to non-human stomachs. Wash, peel, boil, and mash. Even the most delicate of digestive constitutions can handle plain mashed potatoes. Though, the humans like to mix sodium chloride and processed animal fats to just make it as edible by their standards. Even for them, 
plain ones are too bland. But the blandness comes nearly infinite varieties of way to prepare them. From the aforementioned mashed to fried slices in various sizes, making them whole and covering them with all manner of toppings, making bread, making candy, and even more. You are only limited by your imagination. And, as is typical of humans, they have learned how to make some of their strongest intoxicating beverages from this tuber. As I learned about this plot, I started to see similarities between humans and potatoes. Humans have so many different cultures, skin colors, and religious beliefs, but all of them are human beliefs. Potatoes have thousands of different types, all under the heading of potato. Their jack-of-all-trades mentality means that they can learn just about anything. Like a potato, they are rather plain and can be made to be anything that you can imagine. The potato is a jack-of-all-trades as well. I'm told that a human can survive on nothing but potatoes with their skins and the processed animal fats mentioned above for weeks on end as long as they have properly clean water as well. Humans spread across their planet and are starting to spread through the galaxy. They grow where they are planted, providing they have enough basic resources, like a potato, which they grow on 90% of their colonies, so the comparison works for both, and they still grow them all over their home world. However, it may surprise you to know that the potato is a member of a family of plants that is poisonous. For all I've said about its bland nature and uses, the green parts are toxic. Several types of potato are actually more toxic than others and can even lay a human low. So like a potato, certain humans are more deadly than others. Most are completely unobtrusive and calm. But you still need to tread carefully. You need to know the exact variety of human you are dealing with before you deal with them. Otherwise, an upset stomach may be the least of your worries. And, as you know, there are few things that even an average human can't lay low. Excerpt from Plant Life and Death Worlds, Earth Edition, by Professor Orno Thanar. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1838. Options, written by Infernalism. It honestly didn't look like much from orbit. White, cracked, smaller than the moon, and compared to its parents' planet, Europa, came across as almost an afterthought. In 2090, United Earth finally established a base on Europa, the first of its kind, the EU station Providence. At the time, it was the singular most exciting thing in science and exploration. We already spread to several other worlds, having discovered the sidestep process that opened the galaxy to us and colonization. The idea of exploring Europa almost seemed quaint by that point, as we discovered three other space-faring societies within the first decade of sidestepping across the closest stars. Nevertheless, the idea of discovering life so close to Earth still had a lot of appeal to the EU scientific community. But since it wasn't an official priority, the scientific community was merely given the permission to do so as they wished as the primary goal of the EU was to find habitable worlds that would be empty and immediately available for colonization. And, to be completely fair, the scientific community preferred that. With the opening of the galaxy via sidestepping, 
The surreal feeling of euphoric excitement had swept through humanity, with all of the sciences and disciplines suddenly exploding with new discoveries. They were already, unironically, calling it the Second Renaissance. Europa, however, and slightly amusingly, never turned into anything of interest, much to the distress of that scientific community that spent so much time and effort establishing a base there. They found life, yes, but simple life that flourished in deep liquid ocean that lay beneath the ice crust. It took them twenty years to fully establish Providence, and all that came of it was an out-of-the-way spot for oceanographers to test their theories and for engineers to explore true deep-sea submersibles. Granted, they had yet to find a world that required such things as habitable, so-called garden worlds were plentiful in the wider galaxy. So Providence was mostly associated with disappointment and a cautionary tale regarding getting ahead of oneself in the scientific world. To date, Providence is manned by a few hundred scientists, mostly oceanographers, engineers, technicians, students of those different fields, and, lastly, a slow but steady stream of civilians that came here to see the eye. You see, Providence is unique in its design. It's built into the ice crust of Europa, with a solid metal dome covering the surface structure. But it's the other half of Providence that draws in the tourists. And on the other side of the crust, an identical dome sits affixed to the underside of the icy crust made of a transparent metal alloy. With two halves connected via mile-thick anchoring columns, the transportation tubes, the underneath as it's called, hangs down from the ice crust, the majority of which are sensors, cameras, all manner of scientific study devices, all aimed down into the European ocean below. It was a wonder at the time of its creation back in 2019, but the UE has long surpassed it in engineering feats. Today, there are five different worlds that hold human populations over a billion people, and all of them qualify as paradises. New discoveries are trumpeted every day. It seems, with brilliant engineers working on marvels like Dyson tubes, world-spanning shipyards, communicating across the galaxy via quantum communication networks. So, why in the hell am I here on a tourist ship, making my final approach to Providence Station? To be honest, I'm not entirely sure as yet, but I will find out. I can tell you, though, it's not for leisure. That said, the drinks weren't terribly bad. The side overhead peeped, finally indicating final approach, and while I knew already about now the approach would be done, it didn't stop me from grasping tighter to the chair arms as the metal roof of the tourist ship hummed lightly and suddenly faded into transparency. Jupiter's brilliance was immediate, and while I'd seen it before, the great vast world still awed me, and the cabin was filled with gasps and cries and remarks of two dozen other passengers, all tourists, who may well be seeing it for the first time. Their first reaction, that instinctive fixation on the far stretch of Jupiter overhead, helped distract from the sudden swelling of Europa's ice crust, rushing up at us as the ship dived down, nose first, at the white expanse. There was a scream or three as we plummeted, and I would say that the pilots did it on purpose, but the craft had been on autopilot since arriving in the European orbit. We fell out of the sky and, seemingly, 
At the last second, the ship veered towards a black jagged black line that split the white crust and fell deep into the moon's crust. The screams continued for a minute and, overhead, an inhumanly friendly and calm voice explained how the gravity of Jupiter pooled on the Europa's crust as it orbited, causing an icy tectonic activity, opening up fissures that went all the way down through the crust itself. We fell into that darkness, only with interior lights illuminating that dark, so we couldn't see the craggy ice cliffs on either side. We couldn't see anything at all until we were swallowed up by violet-white plume of water exploding upwards from below. From that deep ocean that lay beneath, the roar of which was felt even through the transparent shell designed to protect against direct impacts with asteroids and orbital impact. They tell me that Europa has a slightly atmosphere, mostly made of oxygen, but you never have known it from that descent from vacuum to submerged in a warm ocean. Well, relatively speaking, the water itself hovers near the freezing temperature near the crust, I'm told, but compared to the vacuum of space, it's a warm and comforting blanket. More lights come on as we descend and finally enter the European ocean proper, leveling out and turning towards the underneath of the eye of Europa, that being the vast dome itself. Here again, I can see how Providence has become so popular an attraction for tourists and travelers. The dome itself is clear and the whole of the thing is lit up from within. Great vast structures reach down from the crust above within the dome, like daggers or teeth, nothing touching the dome itself. And a thousand spotlights reach down from the dome into the water below, highlighting the quick moving figures of alien fish, quicksilver in the dark with the spotlights highlighting them and then gone, going deep again to avoid the light, which they undoubtedly saw as a sign of danger. A brilliant sight to see, even for someone like myself who'd seen a thing or two in the last 20 years. Unfortunately, that sight faded away as the ship took us into the docking tunnel, the ship's shell going opaque again as the sight of the ice tunnels wasn't exactly exciting for anyone. Once we exited, we could have been on Earth or Haven or any other human-controlled worlds. The port was smaller than most, though, and even then, we were the only ship that had docked. Empty stalls and stations, they echoed with our steps and the loud tourists that surrounded. With a tour guide going on about Europa and the port itself, built into the highest layer of the underneath, the guards ahead and behind were slightly curious, though. The ones behind stopped with me when I bent down to retie my laces. I couldn't tell if they were upset or just surprised when I stood back up with a badge in hand. Jack Lane, I am with United Earth, Department of the Interior. I need to see your boss, now. Mr. Lane, it is a pleasure. By the way he shook my hand, you'd think I'd come to take his job away, which, incidentally was something entirely possible if I were truly from the interior, which I wasn't, but he didn't need to know that. Director Phillips was a tallish man, heavier than I expected too. Europa's gravity was next to nothing, and even with artificial gravity, there was always a slimming effect on those who spent their time outside an Earth-similar gravity. Normally, I used that to my advantage, 
Sir, it was a bit surprising to see such a physicality in a man who'd spent the last 30 years or so on a moon with barely more than a tenth of Earth's gravity. The guards had been quick to take me to the director, a side door taking me away from the gaggle of tourists and into the world behind the tourist system. A horizontal elevator, then a descending elevator, and then I was left behind in a smallish room where the director found me a few minutes later. Come in, please. The man was nervous about being in the unscheduled meeting with a member of the department that could fire him or confiscate the entirety of the station itself. He didn't show it. I kind of liked that, to be honest. That said, I still had a job to do. Director Phillips. Henry, please. It's best to stay formal, Director. For the moment, at least. Again, no sign of stress. No flop swept. No obvious anxiety. If you say so, Mr. Lane. He moved back in with me and moved over to take a seat at his desk. He had a vast window set into the wall behind him, looking out over the dome behind and beneath him. A great view of nothing, really. In 30 years, I don't think that we've ever had an interior agent visit us. I hope there's no issue. Well, uh, that depends on a few things, Director. A few clicks on the PDA and... Director, your station here has had a static population of rotating professionals for the last 25 years. Five years ago, however, a discrepancy was noted and filed. You had 35 men rotate in and supposedly 35 men rotate out. However, those 35 men are currently unaccounted for. You have access to our records. I'm sure you can see how we filed their departure data appropriately. Yes, Director. We do have that. That said... Those men are still unaccounted for. It's a big galaxy, Mr. Lane. We did our part. That said, it seems very strange that they'd all disappear. Amazingly strange. Are you sure there is not a data mix-up somewhere? Are you sure they actually left? He paused, then he continued. Why would we bother lying about that? Indeed. Why would you? You're free to search the facilities, if you like. Funny. One guy searching a base this size. Director, I'll let you know if that's necessary. Let's move on. As you wish. There was something about him that bothered me, and it wasn't his flippant attitude. He seemed off. Now, you need to understand. I've seen aliens. Real, honest-to-God aliens. And most of them didn't bother me in the slightest. They were different looking and sounding, but just different. This guy was offsetting somehow. Something. I returned to the PDA... Three years ago, you reached out to the linguistics department at no less than six different universities on Earth, requesting details on a certain ancient languages, in specific Polynesian and other South Pacific languages. Is that a problem? We're more interested in learning why. Just a personal interest. It's nothing related to our work here. Uh-huh. Speaking of your work here, two years ago, you requested a mining team that arrived and has not yet been rotated out again. That is correct. They're expanding the tunnels in the upper dome area. I see. I wasn't aware that we needed more space here on Providence. Better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it, Mr. Lane. These are minor issues, at best. Director, what are you hiding? United Earth was a big bureaucracy, but once something is noticed, it is not something that is ignored. And with Providence being so close to Earth... He sat there, silent across from me, just watching for a long minute while seemingly nodding to himself. Very well, Mr. Lane. 
I'd hoped to keep this under wraps for a bit longer, but it seems as if the UE won't let me. He stood again, sounding somewhat relieved, strangely enough, excited. Come with me. I felt better now that the director had finally owned up to something being wrong here. Perhaps he had indulged himself in some unauthorized work. That would explain the missing men, the mining teams, and the linguistics requests. What kind of work? I had no idea. But I waited to see first. More elevators again, and my somewhat directed question was evaded by admonishments that he'd rather show me than tell me. Down we went. I realized at the last that he was taking us to the very tip of the lowest structure, closest to the dome itself. We exited out in a room that had a transparent floor, as if we hovered there above the alien ocean, with a large pointed device pointing down at the floor and, presumably, through the floor and into the ocean itself. Do you know why Providence was built here? The ice crust was thinnest here. Very good. Incidentally, it is also where the ocean happened to be the deepest. It's nearly 100 miles deep. That's nearly 15 times as deep as the deepest spot on Earth. Director, we found something. But this, gesturing to the pointed system at the center of the room. You're going to have to be more specific. Ruins. I shook my head. Impossible. If you said you'd found ruins on the surface, I might have bought it. But even if you managed to find a way to map the bottom of Europa's ocean, there is no way anything could be there. Certainly not ruins. Now, it was Hed's turn to look amused. Why not? You said it yourself. It's nearly 100 miles down. My water pressure alone would make any sort of civilization impossible. Nevertheless, it's there. Jesus. Director, if you're doing this to drum up more tourism... This is an echolocation-based system. Like you said, we were looking to map the floor. Instead, the system penetrated a silt and found a structure there. More to the point, we realized that the echo pulse was having a physical impact. The amount of power needed for that would be immense. Hence, the need for new tunnels or new power facilities. There is no indication in our reports that you've built a new power facility. Yes, your interior missed that bit. Yes, he sounded distinctly amused, almost arrogant. In any case, we've spent the last few years using the system here to clear out the silt, with repeated blasts from the echolocator. Those blasts would decimate any ruins below. You'd think so, Mr. Lane. In fact, they show no signs of any damage at all, of any kind. So you kept these missing men here to run your systems quietly, while covertly building new additions to your station and, you admitted, doing so with the intent to defraud the interior. I think it's time we talked about bringing in some auditing teams and determining where we go from here, Director. Have you heard nothing I've said, Mr. Lane? Oh, I've heard. You're either off your fucking rocker, or you're lying out your ass. Either way, Director, the Interior isn't interested in funding your personal diversions any longer. Either you resign today, now, or we go back to Earth with you in a set of cuffs. Those are your options. Do I have to decide now? His arrogance was starting to irritate me. But there was something else there. Something that, if I were being honest, I'd say was scaring me. I hoped he couldn't see it, but the smile he had... Before I decide, I want to show you one thing. Fair enough? I should have said no, but... Fine! He called out to his associate, calling out for him to put an image up on display. That image? Yes, that image. One of the wall screens lit up and a fuzzy image came to view. One 
a chopped. The echolocator bounced back an image. We had it in its greatest possible strength at the time, and it penetrated right through the muck. Bounced off a, uh, slab, I think, and bounced us back to us. Sharp detailed now. Not a bit of degradation. No chips marred its surface. No erosion from the ceaseless ocean. No cracks. No breaks. Just lines of text, images, figures. Maybe I was jet-legged from the trip. But I had a hell of a headache building suddenly. I found myself fixated on one word there. If you could call it a word. It could have been gibberish. But I kept coming back to it, looking at it, trying to read it, trying to say it. I got closer and closer, squinting and focusing. The director, he just laughed at me as I stood there, inches from the wall, so focused on that word. Really, it's not your fault, Mr. Lane. It's an old word. A name, in fact. It's pronounced Releha. End of story. Tales from Without a Space 1839 Convoy Defense Measures, written by Damascus Serra. 2534 CE, June 24th. Mixed Species Congo Convoy, currently passing through System 2342 in the Orion Arm. Piracy Threat, 23%. List of Ships in Convoy, Virelian, Cargo Freighter, BCCS, Eye of Glory. Basic Point Defense Cannons, Convoy Head. Virelian Luxury Transport, VLC, Starry Skies, Unarmed. Karasi Cargo Freighter, KSCI, Screw Taxes, Basic Point Defense Cannons. Erasian Cargo Freighter, ICF, Profit of Profit. Substantial Point Defense Systems. Terran Cargo Freighter, UNCS, Venus Flytrap. Substantial Point Defense Systems. Captain James Campbell of the Venus Flypot. Looked out onto the big of his ship, sipping a cup of sealed coffee as his acceleration of half G kept him standing on the ground as if he were on a downsized version of Earth. Though he had never been on the homeworld himself, taking a deep, long gulp of the black beverage, the savior of tired scholars, officers, and workers alike throughout human history. He sighed in relief at having the forethought to bring an extra large supply of caffeine-filled beans onto his ship, along with the state-of-the-art coffee maker. And judging by a dozen crew members of the bridge, with their own hot cup beside them. They all appreciated it as well. Especially since they were all woken up to deal with a soon-to-be pirate attack. What is their directory? Captain Campbell says as the officer to his left, watching a three-dimensional hologram of the local system zoomed in to where both the convoy and the incoming fleet of ships are a reasonable size. A line showing the current trajectories of both fleets meeting an intercept. Four hours away, two hours before they get into hypothetical weapons range, depending on what armament the pirates got, and they're already within our effective range. Any closer, and it'll be near impossible to miss. The navigation officer says, relaying the information to the captain's terminal in front of him. Incoming tight beam communications from the rest of the fleet, Captain. Seems they're starting to get antsy about the incoming contacts. Should we ignore them again? The comm officer relays the request on the captain terminals as well. Accept them, visual and audio, Camel says, while taking the last gulp of his sacred coffee, before magnetically locking the cup to the floor and leaning back in his flight seat. The other four captains begin showing onto the screen, each one looking increasingly worried or holding back anger at being ignored in such a time when pirates are burning hard towards them 
and their precious cargo. Finally, we have been trying to get into contact with you since the pirates showed up on Raider five hours ago. Where have you been? They're nearly in weapons range by now. The captain of the starry sky shouts at him, loud enough that Carol is unlikely every other captain decreased their volume of him a few percentages. Sorry, we couldn't comfort you and give you a teddy bear to hug. But we've been busy figuring out how to deal with the pirates so that you don't have to worry. Just let us deal with them, Camel states calm, which only seems to anger the other captains more. Even your ship's point defense cannons don't seem to be enough. It looks like you are facing... The starry skies captain began to shout before he was interrupted. Three corvette-sized craft, two frigate-sized craft, yes, I'm well aware. We have this planned out already. So, if you don't mind, I would like to spend the next hour before they demand cargo, and we start shooting to be in quiet, if you don't mind. Shooting? What do you mean, shooting? We wait for them to send the price, and we either pay it or send cargo of its value. Shooting them is only going to make them angrier, and want more if they don't just scrap your ship with a few railgun shots. The captain of the Prophet of Prophet also begins to shout out, while the other captains look panicked as if the Terran had lost its mind. Shut up! Camel shouts at full volume into his microphone, making the other captains take off their headsets and earbuds for a moment to clear the ringing in their ears. Waiting a moment for them to put them back on, Camel continues, Let us here handle this and you can tell us about how reckless or irresponsible we are afterwards. I'm not giving a cent to a pirate scum. Captain Camel looked over to his comms officer, who cuts the link, making the bridge silent once again, except for the occasional sip of coffee. And now we wait for the pirates. One hour later, all ships in the fleet get a communication from the pirates. Camel opens up the link while making sure the other captains don't open theirs so they can't screw it up. Taking a sip from the freshly brewed cup of coffee, Camel once again thanks the gods of Earth for creating Coffee Bean millennia ago. Finishing his imagined prayer of sipping the beverage, he looks towards the impatient and raging-looking alien pirate, glaring at him through the screen. Evening, or, well, it's evening for us. Your sudden activation of your transponder woke us up here on the Venus flyplant. What seems to be the problem? The problem is that you're going through our space without paying the tithe we require, but that can easily be rectified. We require 10% of the cargo from each of your ships, and we can guarantee you safe passage, of course. The alien smirked it away he probably thought was intimidating. Camel was less than impressed. Sorry, no can do. Company policy states we're not allowed to transfer cargo except by a validated recipient. You're gonna have to call corporate about Danny. Okay, you're clearly not getting this, so let me rephrase this. We are robbing you. <laughs> Give us your cargo or we will shoot you. Oh, I see. Well, then that does change things, does it? Campbell looks over at the gunnery officer. Hey, Officer Dale, can you give the man our share of cargo? I'll be sure to notify the rest of my compatriots to comply. Campbell smiles the fakest smile he's ever had to make, while the pirate captain glares at the bearing teeth. Good to see that it... The cargo containers stacked row upon row on the Venus flight plant suddenly had their doors flung open 
as every second cargo container launches a large tube into space, slowly floating out past the ship and starting to fall behind as the ship's thrust continues leaving them behind, until their own engines light up, and a dozen missiles immediately burn hard towards the pirate fleet. You understand? The pirate captain is cut off by red warning lights and klaxons sounding on his ship. Here comes some of our cargo heading express delivery right towards you. Do enjoy. Camel smokes back. You treacherous whelp. Fire back. Scrap them into slag. The pirate shouts out while cutting communication with the captain. The threat detection boards light up with a half dozen torpedoes flying straight for the Terran ship. The ship's general quarters alarm blaring at every crew member and finds the nearest harness seat and buckles in for evasive maneuvers. Two railgun shots begin streaming fast towards the Terran ship, signified by a yellow dot moving extremely fast on the radar screen. However, being far outside their optimum range, the Terran ship thrusters are burned hard upwards, causing the shots to miss by tens of seconds. The hard burn causing everyone to sink into the seats for a moment. Within seconds of cancelling out the momentum from the burn, the point defense cannons on the Terran ship emerge from their hidden mouths and immediately begin pounding towards the incoming torpedoes before lighting up space between them with bright streaks of 30mm tracer rounds fired at thousands of rounds per second from each gun. With each torpedo from the pirates being eliminated within seconds of getting within maximum range of the PDCs, their primitive targeting computer not able to make evasive maneuvers unlike the Terran military-grade missiles. The Terran missiles streak towards the pirate ship, their own PDCs fire, though at much slower rates and with smaller calibers. As the Terran missiles adjust their trajectories wildly to avoid the PDC fire, though still three of the missiles were intercepted before they struck home, lighting up the first two corvettes in bright balls of plasma as their warheads ignite upon impacting the ship's hull, turning whatever was caught in its blast radius into vapor, while the remaining part of the ship was red-hot slag. Two more missiles were intercepted by the frigates. However, that wasn't enough to save them either. With the large ships being the biggest threat, they were targeted the most, and both were similarly turned into temporary stars within the dark void of space. The remaining corvette immediately turning around and burning hard away from the fleet, trying to cancel out its momentum and escape. Hmm, seems they're trying to get away. Shame they never surrendered, though. Fire two more missiles, Camel says while grabbing his cup of coffee and taking another unhealthily large swig. As the light thunk of the two more cargo containers hatches bursting up and revealing their deadly cargo reverberates through the ship, followed soon by the beep of new contact signatures on the threat display board. The two missiles streak towards the remaining corvettes as the PDCs attempt to destroy them, barely scraping one before both impact. The only signal that they hit is a red dot disappear and the captain and gunner's threat display map. The strike successful notification from the fire control AI. Well, that was quick. Comms, get me a tight beam to the other captains. I want to see their faces. The captain says with a satisfied grin. He loves seeing the faces of captains who just found out exactly what the Terrence Cocker was on their ship. Almost makes it worth being transferred from the Navy battleship to Q ship patrols. 2534 CE, June 25th. Mixed species cargo convoy currently passing through system 2342 in the Orion arm. 
Piracy threat, 0%. List of ships and convoy. Morellian cargo freighter, VSS Eyes of Glory. Basic point defense cannons, convoy head. Morellian luxury transport, VLC Starry Skies. Unarmed. Karasi cargo freighter, KCI screw taxes. Basic point defense cannons. Erisian cargo freighter, IFC profit for profit. Substantial point defense cannons. Terran Navy anti-piracy Q-ship. Disguised cargo freighter, UNCS Venus Flytrap. Extreme number of point defense cannons, ship-to-ship -ship missiles, and chaff. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1840. An end of an era written by Chapathi. When we found the humans all those centuries ago, we had no idea what monster we had unleashed on the galaxy. They were creative, but lacked our vision in scientific matters. We believed ourselves above them. How Grand Magistrate Alpha believed them to be ideal warriors for our conquering armies, and ordered us to rebuild their population after we bombed their planet to ash. We built orbital stations and prepared a nearby barren planet for habitation while we rebuilt their planet. As they occupied orbital stations, we sped up the process of breeding them by mixing genes in artificial wombs. We bred them as quickly as we could to prepare them for the role on the galactic battlefields. We indoctrinated them as children to accept us as their benevolent benefactors, guiding them away from their primitive past. How naive we were to believe that something as pure as hatred could be completely removed from the psyche of an entire race. We'd always believed that the Scion song was the pinnacle of Xeno interaction, melding words, emotions, and thoughts into one entity that we and a chosen race could understand. It allowed us to speak to Xenos we had just encountered and could be understood without guidance. It removed the language barriers that made integration into our empire difficult. What it also removed was the primary thing keeping humans apart. In hindsight, it's obvious but at the time, we had no idea how something as ubiquitous as the song could lead to our downfall. Humans have an infuriating affinity for forming groups. Regardless of the situation, be assured that a human will find something to draw a line over. Perhaps being packed species by nature emphasized this. The end result was that humans would as constantly seek to affirm their beliefs by finding others who thought the same by giving them a song that unified them by species rather than ethnicity or nationality. We unified the humans far more than they ever could. Our indoctrinated humans were rejected outright despite our efforts to make them appealing to associate with. Movements against us were constant and hatred for our kind was ever present. Every time we purged the station of anti-violence sentiment, another would rise. If they were not needed in such great numbers, we would never have allowed them to exist. Their ability in combat was not what defined them. They died just like any other species. Perhaps they were arguably better at dying slower, but a shot to the gut usually put them down. What defined them, though, was how little they cared for their own personal safety. They readily ignored danger and fought against the odds that any other species would cave in. They fought with their backs against the wall and by each other's side. 
We took advantage of this and formed armies from one colony to ensure that they would die for each other. The victories they gave us blinded us further. When the humans requested that they have human officers, we allowed it. Why fight alongside a lesser species when we could use our superior intellect to guide from the rear? When they requested they have their own fleets, we allowed it. Why lose our own superior ships when inferior escorts would allow it to be lost? Every time we had the chance to show humans we were in charge, we took the easy way out. And so, there we were. Humans unified by one song, fighting alongside their friends with access to their own fleet. The chosen we put in charge exerted their influence and tried to maintain control. But if there's one thing humans hated more than us, it was traitors to their race. Hate crimes against the Chosen were frequent and we enforced discipline as needed, but it never dissuaded the humans. We sent a Bergen hordes to pillage colonies that showed disloyalty, but the humans had earned Bergen respect on the battlefield. We foisted Nakota assassins on their leadership, but the Nakota and the humans were in a league with each other. When we came to our senses and realized how far the disloyalty went, we raised our own armies from old colonies and prepared to purge the traitors even. The 500 years of peace that our race enjoyed had deprived us of our warrior spirit. Those who could fight were in such few number to be irrelevant and those who were forced to fight were cowards and incompetent. The miracles of technology held the odds in our favor for some time. Humans, in their brutish power armor, would target practice for the immortal warriors of Jade Tides turning fire. We had no need for reinforcements at first, when we had the initiative. One warrior could cleanse an entire colony of dissenters, but things slowly began to turn. We committed every immortal we had to the task of quelling the uprising, but even if a million died before one of our immortals fell, it was still an irreplaceable loss. As our veteran warriors fell, there were fewer to teach the recruits who'd never held a weapon in their lives, who in turn were forced into the fire before them. As we lost the planets, we wisened to the tactics of the traitor Zeno. We armed our ships with as many weapons as we could, and we cut a swath through their vast suites of inferior ships without loss. Had we only needed to deal with the three inferior races, the Nakota, the Bargain, and the Humans, we would eventually deplete their reserves. But the galaxy is a very large place, and we had made many enemies in it. In our golden age of conquest, we had fleets in every corner of the Empire and armies ready to strike down raiders and invasions with an unrelenting force. But with our fleets focused inward and our armies scattered to the solar dust, 2,000 years of retribution was given to our illustrious empire. The Pacillians were the first to strike. Their smugglings delivered weapons and shipbuilding expertise to worlds not under blockade, and their primary fleet struck at our outer colonies. Our administration was paralyzed, and for several days nothing was done, while our mining operations and space facilities were sacked. By the time we were able to react, several smaller empires had joined the conflict and drove into our territory. We abandoned our hold over rebel space and focused on a larger threat. 
Free from blockades, the rebels renewed their liberation of territories. With the Seven Empire Force bearing down on us, there was nothing that we could do. The Burgan retook territory we claimed in the Pacification Wars five centuries ago, and the Nakota reformed the Seven Rings Empire we'd crushed three centuries prior. The humans stole as much of the neighboring territory as they could take. By the time the invaders reached our core worlds, they were ripe for the taking. Many chose death over facing the retribution, and Scions screamed in agony as they felt the fellow Scions die and faced Nero clamping across the Empire. Our leaders abandoned us and fled to neutral system, leaving everyone else to face the fires alone. The Treaty of the Ashen Winds was the final time the Varlands held a position of power. Facilians reclaimed their former planets from our outer regions, rich in ore and infrastructure. The smaller empire snatched the leftovers and the Pacellians couldn't reasonably claim. The Bergen, Nakota, and humans were given divided territory in the region. Valhand citizens were stripped of their social status except for a select few. Some Valhands who studied or served under Xenos betrayed their race as the rebellion came to full swing. Those traitors were given deals and offers of safe haven as heroes while the rest of us were damned to second-class citizenry. In the wake of all of this, the three Xenos allied to the Republic of Yorso, the neutral planet of all three held where the Republic was made. As for the Valens people, most withered away and scattered to the heavens, or died of shame in the wake of the collapse. As for I, I persevere and record the last flames of the Valens, so that history of my people will be complete. The Last Librarian End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1841 Story number one. Stop sending heroes, otherwise I'll send one of my own. Written by Random 3X The High Bishop massaged his temples, hoping to the gods above to relieve him of the headache he was enduring of late. He was dealing with the aftermath of an uproar within the church and the theocracy's leadership as a whole. They had sent no less than a dozen separate groups of heroes to slay the ruler of the Dark Continent, the Dark Lord Herodrum. They had already gone through the entire class of promising hero candidates from the theocracy's orphanage. The High Bishop was genuinely struck with what to do. To make matters worse, he had just gotten free from an inquisitorial investigation for suspicion of providing the Dark Lord with soldiers. Resolving himself to continue to prove his loyalty, he dove back into looking over a batch of documents from one of the Paladin Orders. Before he could even begin to make any progress, a knock came on his office door. Melard, a servant, drew his attention, looking worried. What is it, beastling? The High Bishop shot back. He was still seething. He had all his pure-blooded human servants confiscated and, in their place, been given a lowly beastling for a servant. A thousand apologies, my lord, but a messenger has arrived from the Dark Continent. They carried the Dark Lord's seal. The diminutive beastling explained while repeatedly bowing its head. A messenger? Anyone of note? The High Bishop asked. I, uh, believe they self-identified as you, Ironforge. The beastling answered again bowing his head. Ah, they've sent one of the heirs to the rat seat. Send him in. 
the High Bishop said, putting his pen down on his desk with a loud tap. A few minutes later, there was a new knock at the door. Enter, the bishop's voice boomed. The doors were open, and a girl who looked no older than the High Bishop's own daughter walked in. The girl stopped a few paces from his desk, held her right hand to her chest, and bowed. He was surprised he was always under the impression that you, Ironforge, was a male. They knights bow, the High Bishop muttered under his breath, curious as to why a woman would use such a greeting. Greetings, my lord. I come bearing a message for the theocracy from the current ruling Dark Lord. His most august majesty, Dark Lord Heredrum, she began after rising from her bow. What is the message, and shouldn't it be addressed to her ladyship, the Pope? he asked. Well, it isn't the Pope sending assassins. The Dark Lord felt it best to deliver the message to the man sending them, she answered with a cheery grin. Assassins! The High Bishop near screeched as he rose and knocked the stack of documents off his desk. Never had he had his honors so insulted. I have not sent assassins, as you so ignorantly put it. I have been sending heroes to do God's work, he scoffed. Little girl had the same kind of attitude his daughter had. Oh, uh, I got something for this one, she said, holding up a finger to try and pause the conversation. Working through a bag, she shuffled through a few pages of paper. Ah, here it is, she said, holding out a small square. <clears throat> she cleared her throat at first. The High Bishop, however, was frozen by the audacity of what he was witnessing. Perhaps this is an issue with language between our continents. It seems you believe a trained special warrior sent to eliminate the head of state is not an assassin, an end quote, she said, putting the paper back down with a big grin. Such insolence! The High Bishop screamed, slamming his desk with his fists, knocking what few documents remained neatly ordered over the edge. What has happened to the heroes we have been sending? He asked with a near feral snarl. Uh, one sec, she said again, and was sifting through the pages. Ah, okay. Um, of the thirteen assassins sent over the past two years, four have been summarily executed, she paused, as the High Bishop's face dropped from the rage to utter despair. Executed? He repeated, not wanting to believe the children he had raised himself were dead. Yes, uh, it says here that they killed guards or civilians during their infiltration, so they were charged and sentenced with the murders. You explained. Mimi, a hanging. Uh, the next four were remanded to hard labor. Their attempts were stopped by either the royal guard or the Dark Lord himself, so there was no loss of life. They will serve the remainder of their natural lives working one of my father's minds, she explained, pausing to let the High Bishop absorb this information. Uh, uh, and the, the remain wait, wait, wait. Earlier you said 13. The High Bishop began before changing track. Yes, it seems one of your... Uh, I'm sorry, uh, I mean, uh, heroes acquired the help of a citizen from our land, she explained. Uh, the, the remainder have been taken in as wards of the Dark Lord himself. She gave a conspiratorial wink while shielding her mouth as if sharing some juicy gossip. Haradrim is a bit of a softy between you and me. The High Bishop could only slump in his chair. His children, the very kids he considered his own, were either dead or in such torturous hell. Such death would be welcome. He could only shudder at what Haradrim must be doing to the ones he didn't imprison. 
Is that all? He meekly said, not looking at you. Uh, yes, sir. Though this one will be a direct letter from Haradrim himself. It is rather scathing, if I do say so, she said, holding up a letter with a broken wax seal. The High Bishop didn't even have the energy to rage at this break in etiquette. He just gave a limp gesture with his right hand. She handed him the letter and retreated a few steps. Dearest High Bishop Smeltier, I hope you're doing well. I myself am doing excellently. We have a few new exceptional labor pool added to our mining industry, and I've recently adopted many new children. For this gift, I must thank you from the depths of my new father's heart. I will say, how though, that the manner with which your gift of laborers approached me left much to be desired. Many assume the role to be that of murder. However, I shan't fault you this. Such is the way with the youthful, not heeding the orders of the elders and such. I will add, though, if you feel the need to persist in sending me new laborers, I'll feel obliged to return the favor. However, I assure you of this, one will certainly suffice. I will finish this letter with an observation from what my new children have told me about you, that if you have ever had a bright idea, it quickly died alone and hungry. Yours sincerely, the Dark Lord Heredrum. End of story. Story number two. What horrors lurk in the minds of humans? Written by Tanya Sapien. My name is High Inquisitor Adamant Ferrisung. I'm here to warn you recruits, as you all will be likely encountering humans in the field. Many of you know me for my unrivaled psionic abilities. I have been heralded for being able to kill or spare with nothing but a glance. I've toppled buildings with nothing more but a scream. Yet, know this, even I take precautions when entering a mind of a human. Many people think humans are defenseless against mental attacks because their brains lack the needed structures. In fact, many humans are defenseless. Politicians, the wealthy elite, comfortable scientists. These are the humans most meet, because they travel the most. They explore the stars. These humans don't know pain. They are easy to toy with. Their minds are like putty to our kind. But, uh, humans have a unique reaction to pain. They do more than build up resistance. They build up an immune response to it. A skilled eye can see it in their stars in their gaze, in the structure of their bodies. No, then as twisted as their bodies begin to look after too much pain, their minds twist threefold more. As field agents, you won't be meeting politicians. You'll be meeting the twisted. You'll be meeting the soldiers, the slaves, the criminals, and the victims of such. That type of human has a mind like a hellscape. Every negative act, every regret, every dark thing they've done or seen will play on repeat. It's like a primal part of their survival response refuses to ever let them forget any time that they came close to that looming specter of death that sits so comfortably in their subconscious. This masochistic self-punishment can grab an unprepared telepath and drag them in, drag them down, force them to take part in the macabre dance. During my career, I've had to rescue three different agents this way. None of those three were enemy combatants. They were refugees. The agents only wanted to help 
and were instead pulled into their traumas that created those refugees in the first place. Each of these three have been removed from field duty and will need therapy for the rest of their lives for what they saw inside the human minds. A human's greatest enemy is themselves, and when you enter into their mind, you have to fight it too. Never forget that. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1842 Competition, written by Gaza1121 Name, Graddock. Full name, please. The receptionist clarified. Graddock Crushrock. Crushrock, Crushrock. Ah, yes, here we are. Species musculus, preferred specialty, security and enforcement. Allotted room 334. Welcome to the Galactic Defense Corps Academy. Thanks, um, where do I find 334? Is there a map? Yes, sir. My apologies, replied the receptionist. Here is is in your welcome back. Your main orientation will take place tomorrow. Your time slot is in the pack. I just gave you and the location will be in front of the building we are in now. So, uh, what should I do today? Greta asked, though the answer seemed obvious. For today, I recommend that you rest and read over your welcome pack. I understand that travel from your world is a long one. Out of curiosity, did you stay awake for the trip? No, uh, I wasn't going to lounge about for five weeks waiting to arrive. I went into stasis practically the moment I stepped onto the ship. From one rest straight into another, then. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with a lion, is there? Granite asked jovially, smiling in spite of himself. Damn, these are all rumbobs. They're always seem so nice. You could never dislike your kind. Not for very long, anyway. When they joined the Galactic Federation, they cornered the market on service industry almost overnight. Almost every waitress, waiter, receptionist, and bartender was a Yolrum Bob. Yes, they charged above the average for their work. But for staff, they had an almost ineffable instinct to cheer up the customers. It was worth it. The receptionist smiled. Oh, of course not. Then, as if a thought had just occurred to her, she asked, If you have gone to, from sleep to sleep, you probably haven't heard about the humans. The what? A new race that joined the Federation. A new race? Yes. Uh, they may cause problems for your people at a starter. Maybe we can get some of my hats, she said with a giggle. Hats? asked Graddock, perplexed. Abruptly, the office phone began to chime. Sorry, but I have to take this. There is a pamphlet on the humans in your welcome back. She spoke quickly while reaching for the handset. Good luck in your studies, and again, welcome to the GDC Academy. Raising the headset to her ear, she turned from Craddock, saying, GDC Academy, how may I help you? Turning with a welcome pack in one hand and his bag in the other, Craddock consulted the map as he left the main building. The building his room was in wasn't particularly far, but neither was a class. He briefly considered reading about these humans as he walked, then stuffed the folder into his bag and slung it over his shoulder. The humans weren't going anywhere. He can read about them later. Making his way towards the building, he thought about the way the receptionist had spoke about him. Species. Musculus preferred specialty security and enforcement. Of course, he preferred specialty with security and enforcement. Honestly, what else would one with his kind do to start? Musculus had been the strength of the GDC for decades. 
There were scant few of his people that hadn't gone into professions where their kinds of strengths were not employed. What would you expect from the only Death World race in the entire Federation? Reaching his room just as the class buzzer sounded, Grandock was dismayed to see two beds in his room. Sharing? They had him sharing? He supposed it was the fool's hope that he was randomly assigned to one of the solo rooms that were kept in case a species had issues that made it difficult to share rooms with other races. As he began to arrange the few personal items and clothing he had brought from home, his door opened behind him. Before he even had a chance to turn, a panicked voice spoke quickly. A human? M my roommate is a human? I, I thought your kind preferred to bunk with each other. Not that I'm saying that you're all welcome, but... Rannoch finally spun around enough to see the speaker. A Guptatcha. Of all the species he could live with, it had to be a Guptatcha. Rannoch wondered how long it would take for him to complain about his smell. It's not his fault, Rannoch supposed. His species had the best senses in the Federation. With a nose like that, it would be easy to sniff Gradock's sweaty clothes. If his people were the strong arm of the GDC, then the Gap Tapture were undoubtedly the furry, wet nose. Their race's superior senses made them obvious choices for scouts and detectives. As he saw Gradock's face and being suddenly seemed relieved, that only gave Gradock pause. The other races had an almost universal apprehension of his kind. People seemed to always assume he might attack just because he came a death world. Oh, sorry. You're a musculus. I'm sorry. I thought you were human. What? No, the new species. Why the feck would you think that I was human? My kind has been part of the Federation for over 50 years. You mean you don't know? Where have you been the last six months? Sleeping under a rock? Uh, yes, actually, I have, Braddock retorted, perhaps a little louder than he meant to. Do you have a problem with that? No. No, not at all, said the good capture the shaking of his head making his long ears flop about. Sudden realization washed over his face as he smacked his snout with a paw, the equivalent of a pace bomb of his kind. I'm so sorry. You just had your hibernation cycle, didn't you? Of course you wouldn't know. Walking over to his side of the room, he grabbed a piece of paper off his desk and held it out to the Gradock. Taking it, he figured it was a pamphlet on humans the receptionist had mentioned. Turning it over, he had a first view of human species, and said the first thing that came to him. What in the feck is that? Yeah, pretty much what every race in the Federation had a similar reaction, not of the Guptatcha. Looking at the bullet points alongside the image, it first read, Despite appearances, they are in no way related to the musculus race. Granok read the line multiple times, as if expecting the words and image to suddenly change. But no, the image, save the face, was almost identical to himself. A little larger, a touch stockier, but still well within error. The smiling face was the only real difference. Where his kind had four eyes, these humans only had two, though the expanse of skin above the main eyes was still present. He couldn't tell in the still image, but he thought his kind's teeth were longer, more geared towards carnivores. Where these things herbivores, omnivores, he went back to the information points. Significantly stronger than average, possessed by a constitution expected of a death. These beings are death worlders. Oh yeah, big time. I've seen some of the images of their homeworld, and it's the stuff of nightmares. How can any sentient species evolve in death worlds? Um, said Craddock sarcastically, raising his hand. Oh, uh, sorry, he replied weakly. What about strength? It says significant. Put it this way. 
he replied. They had to get their own exercise room. What? Yep, he moans only. They are death wilders after all. I'm a death wilder, barked Braddock, and tickled him at least, barking at the Guptapture. Well, yes, agreed the Guptapture with a nod. But there are death wilders, and then there are death wilders. What's that supposed to mean? As his new roommate opened their muzzle to reply, a class buzzer sounded, causing him to yip the alarm. Back, I'm going to be late for class. We can continue this later. Grabbing a few books, he whipped back around, heading for the door. I'm T, by the way. Nice to meet you. Graddock, said Graddock. Just before the door shut fully, T poked his elongated face back in. One last thing. I know how much your kind like to exercise. I would take it as a great favor if you would shower and wash the gym clothes before coming back to the room. Yeah, sure, Braddock replied, struggling to keep a straight face. Less than ten minutes, he thought. Once again, alone in his shared room, he looked at the time. 1 p.m. Looking at the fairly thick welcome booklet, he said, Nope. Flipped it over to see the campus map and reached yard for his gym bag. Five minutes later, he was walking towards the exercise rooms. As he approached, he saw there was indeed two distinctly separate rooms. One was significantly larger than the other, owing to the vast array of exercise equipment suitable for over 20 different species, separated by a glass wall. The other smaller room was clearly designed for bipeds. Everything was much narrower, but there was less equipment, because only one species was supposed to use it. Finally, seeing the humans running on treadmills, he understood the receptionist's giggle. Looking at them, facing the wall, he would have mistaken them as his own kind himself, if he didn't know for a fact that he was currently the only student of his species on this planet. He had taken the first transport available the moment he had awoken from hibernation. Hats, indeed. Looking at the humans, he noted that only three were in the room and none were using the weights. In fact, the weights looked completely unused, at least today. All three were facing the wall, running on treadmills, Looking closely at them, with his long-range eyes, he could clearly see the sweat running from their arms, making small puddles on the sides of the treads, not as strong as he thought then. They were barely jogging, and they were drenched in sweat. Making a snap decision, he changed his direction. He walked into the human-only gym and showed them the other species that were he was strong as his new death wilders. He was of the musculus. His people had been the strong arms of the GDC for over 50 years. He was of the musculus. His people were the strongest beings in the entire Federation. He was Grader Crushrock, and he, he was falling. The moment he crossed the threshold to the room, the force pushed on every cell of his body. It pushed him to his knees instantly and, moments later, to his stomach. The best he could do on his journey downwards was turn his head slightly in an effort to save his face. He was trapped, pinned to the ground. And as the torment him further, one of the humans began to laugh. <laughs> well, that's a beer you owe me, Jenkins. Goddamn new cadets, why don't you ever read the damn gym schedule? Thursdays are cardio, with extra gravity for resistance. Oh, feck, thought Gradock. The insane things have increased the gravity to make running harder. Suddenly, he realized how much trouble he was in. They thought he was human. Well, you just get up, buddy. The aliens are watching and you're making us look bad. It's only 2.75G. You hit 3G leaving Earth. This is really bad, thought Gradock as his vision began to darken. They don't understand I'm in danger because I look like them. They think I can just get up. I need to ask for help. He couldn't talk anymore. He couldn't get enough air. 
So he did the only thing he could. He grunted. Hey, uh, you okay? The first voice said. The first bits of concern creeping into his voice. Gradock heard him move off the treadmill and approach. Yes, willed Gradock. Yes, look at me. I'm not human. As true darkness crept over his eyes, he saw a two-eyed face swim into his vision. Saw panic and understanding blossoming in his eyes. Back! Non-human! Non-human! As that, he finally slipped into unconsciousness. Gradock had an odd floating sensation. It could have been seconds, minutes, or hours. He had no way of knowing. An horrible clawing smell dragged him, kicking and screaming into consciousness. Knocking away something under his nose, he suddenly realized that he really was floating. Hey, uh, you okay? Can you tell me your name? My name is Gradock. Gradock Crushrock. Seriously? Dude, that name is fucking metal. What? Never mind. How do you feel? Shaken, but okay. Good! Next question. What the fuck made you walk into a cardio day? I didn't know. I'm new? Oh, well now you know. Your people call us Death Wilders for a reason. I'm a Death Wilder as well. Oh yeah, I heard there was a second Death World race. Hi, said Gradock weakly. What class of Death World? Asked the humans. Gradock recognized the voice from earlier. This was Jenkins. Gradock suddenly had a sinking feeling in his stomach. Five. Ah, said Jenkins nodding. Earth uh, is a class 18. 18? echoed Gradock. 18 of a possible 20. The musculous, the strongest beings in all the Federation for 50 years had competition. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1843. Story number one. Alien Abductions, written by Random 3X. It was Scarefest in Hamalkar, and Gilbert was just getting home with a couple of friends after watching the latest horror movie about invading beings from another world. The three friends all made their way to his living room and crashed out in their preferred chairs. Well, that was scary, Blabar said in an exhausted exhale. He had never been a fan of scary movies. Very unbelievable, though, Craig said, pushing up his glasses to his eyes. Yeah, I mean, who ever heard of an alien like that? The writers and artists must have let their imagination run away with them, Blork said. Actually, they apparently based it on alien abduction stories of Botty and Baney Hall. Gilbar explained. The fact seemed to surprise the other two. Really? So there were Valtruvians that believe this really happened? Craig asked. Yes, though, can I ask you guys, do you believe aliens really exist? Gilbar asked. I do believe they do. Um, the universe is big for them not to exist. Do, do I believe in aliens like uh, humans who have visited our planet? No. No, no. I, I think if a species is sufficiently advanced, they wouldn't bother with that, Block replied. No, uh, I think it is stupid to believe in aliens. There is no proof that aliens ever exist. We may be alone in the universe, Craig said, offering his opinion. Glibar, though, seemed apprehensive at these replies. He clearly wanted to say something, but was visibly reluctant. Noticing this, his two friends relaxed their body language to let their friend speak his mind. Do you believe in them, Glibby? I, I, uh, I know for a fact that they exist. 
Glibar finally said after a short moment of hesitation. How can you... Uh, yeah, you don't mean that you were... Crag left an unsaid question hanging in the air. Um, yes, yes, uh, I experienced an abduction myself. It's why I suggested we see the movie together. I wanted just to convince myself that it was a dream. But, but no, it only felt scarier. Gilibar was looking increasingly scared. Hey, hey, we won't judge you, buddy. Tell us what happened. Doc said in his most soothing tone. I, um, I was out on a late night stroll when, when there was a really bright light. The other two nodded. This seemed standard so far. When the, the light cleared, I, uh, I was standing in a bright white room, sitting on a table. The others nodded and while Plork rested a comforting hand on Glibbon's shoulder. It's okay. We're here for you. Well, uh, these giant beings appeared. They had no fur except on the top of their heads. Their, their skin was weird pinkish. Guys, I saw a real human. Glibar's lower lip was trembling. What did they do? Plork asked, edging closer to be ready to hug his friend should it be needed. They, uh, they ran a hand from top of my head down my back. They, they kept mumbling something in that language. Glibar accepted the offered hug. What did it sound like? Greg asked, clearly fascinated. It was a strange noise, it, but it sounded like so fluffy. Good puppy. Glibar shuddered, recalling the strange sounds. When did this happen? Greg asked. Oh, a few weeks ago, but I can't speak about it. People would think I'm crazy. Glibar looked more and more despondent. So they only stroked your head and back. Anything else? Bog asked. They, uh, they held out a mesmerizing orb of bright colors for me. I felt my mind lose control to it, and as they threw it, I... I couldn't help but chase it. Glibar's words matched many of the reports from previous abductions, an orb the humans named Ten Isbel. Some kind of mind control device. After that, uh, a grey-furred human... Glibar was cut off by Crack holding his hand. I thought you said they don't have fur. I meant that the small fur on top of his head, but but, but anyways, the, the grey human was walked in and seemed, see, he seemed very angry. Uh, he shouted at the other humans. I, I was so terrified. But with a flash of light, I was back where I had left, and a couple of hours had gone by. Do you remember what the grey furred human said? Crag asked. Glabar shuddered as it was so scary. It had been burnt into his very soul. I told you stop petting the natives. Crag pondered the sounds before holding up a finger in realization. An invasion! He was telling them that I would need to invade soon and to place you back as a mind slave to help with the invasion. Think about it. Why did they use the mind control orb? HR report from Observation Ship 1AD4697. On the 31st of October, Private Perkins and Professor Klein, under the influence of alcohol, provided at the Halloween party. 
decided to go to the transporter and use the device on a native Paporian. The pair then proceeded to interact with the Paporian, treating it like a puppy, and playing fetch with it. Supervisor Malcolms arrived shortly after this all began, and reprimanded the pair for the impromptu puppy party. Under his supervision, they promptly returned the Paporian to where they had taken it from. The pair has been put on a week's suspension for misuse of the device. It is strongly recommended that we allow the crew to bring pets from Earth with them to help prevent the need to abduct uncontacted alien species that, while adorable, are sapient. Please see the notes from the Kitty Fi incident. End of story. Story number two. Translated 6% margin of error. Personal logs of the first major dome to the Empress. Written by Indarius. Day one. First contact. I executed two scouts this morning for the preposterous exaggeration, a severe dereliction of their only duty. It wasn't until the third scout reported the same news that I began to take the report seriously. Certainly nothing that colossal could fly, much less something made of uh, metal. The notion was outrageous. It was only later that I beheld the thing with my own eyes that I allowed the truth to wash over me. It was... Alien life is real. The Empress must be notified at once. Day 2. The aliens have declared war without reason or provocation. Every city within the 6th district was completely obliterated with the vast alien craft deemed to rain down death across the plain. Eventually, the carnage abated and the alien craft landed, rending the earth asunder and crushing millions. All attempts at uh, communication have been met with some very violence. Never have I witnessed such destructive potential, nor the callous will to use it. The Empress has summoned aid from the nearby kingdoms. I only pray that it will not be too late. Day 4 Today I witnessed that which the scientists have deemed impossible. Two titans emerged from the craft to survey the wreckage of our kingdom. The impossible giants moved with astounding speed, rending the ground, the land, the very air in their wake. How diplomatic envoy showed incredible bravery as they approached these titans, bearing such regal gifts as to purchase a king. The aliens briefly spoke thunderous foreign gibberish before they raised a single, ghastly appendage. A brief flash of light was visible, and our delegation had vanished. Annihilated to the last, I will advise the Empress to assemble the legions and mount a full-scale counterattack as soon as possible. Day 7 80% of our superstructure cities have been destroyed, yet the legion still assembles. Nearly every man, woman, and child has been conscripted to fight these demons. While traditional weaponry might be useless, we have hoped that with enough attack ships we might be able to take them down. Now powerful as these alien scum appear to be, they have yet to discern our subterranean layers. Clearly, this oversight of their battle plan might be their undoing. Day 8 The legions were destroyed this morning when another alien craft broke through the skies and crashed upon the plane. 
directly above the staging point for our counterattack. I fear all hope is lost. Day 9. The Empress is dead. Long live the Empress. Day 18. I have spent the last cycle traveling with the remaining refugees to the nearest sister kingdom. Fewer than two million of us remain. Perhaps if the free cities can band together, this invasion might be driven off. Yet after witnessing firsthand the unholy wanton destruction of our abandoned kingdom, I truly hold no hope for our salvation. Day 20. They are coming. By the gods above and below, they are coming. End of translated personal logs. Epilogue. So, boss, sir, uh, the computer's fairly sure the pheromone patterns on these shiny pebbles are some sort of written language. It's even gone so far as to give us the best guess translation. You mean, uh, there's writing on those flecks of sand? No shit. Yeah, man, uh, you'll never guess what it says. Apparently, those mosquito-looking feckers were pretty sophisticated. They had some sort of kingdom on and under the beach we landed on. Hell. Remember when you blasted that swarm that was coming with you earlier? Well, uh, that was some sort of delegation. Uh-huh. Damn. I just didn't want to see if they could get through the suit. Yeah, go figure. So what? You think we should go get the company on the line and let them know? Probably a pretty big deal, right? Intelligent life on this rock. Possibly a finder's been involved. Forget it, dude. We might get in trouble. Didn't you read the manual about first contact situations? That crap has some pretty by-the-book procedures. We might even get canned for fecking it up. Fine. Fine. Just thought that we should be pretty cool. So, um, we're still leaving in 30. Yeah, we're almost filled up. This fecking planet spins too fast anyway. The rotation at every hour has my migraine ticking into overdrive. Gotcha, boss. And, uh... What do we do about the mosquito people? They're goddamn bugs, dude. I'm sure when we take off, it'll glass any evidence that we were here, anyway. Wouldn't worry about it. Uh, good call, boss. Good call. Uh, I wonder if they even sucked blood. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1844 The Desert, written by Arinval. You shouldn't be here. I jumped a little, startled. I wasn't expecting to hear anyone speaking to me here. Here was the desert, a psychic construct my mind used as a metaphor for my depression. It was an apt one, too. Dark sky with unfamiliar stars, black sand underfoot, diffuse gray light illuminating the scene as bright as noon, but had no visible source and cast no shadow. The air was cool, but not unpleasantly so. The distant mountain range rose over the far horizon. Why my subconscious had decided to steal the setting from a Terry Patchett's discworld was beyond me, but it worked. Death being here, however, was new. I looked over my shoulder. He was standing a few feet away, seven feet tall, skeletal, hooded black robe with pinpricks of blue light denoting eye sockets. I didn't see his scythe anywhere, which was a good sign, I guessed. I shrugged. I didn't really feel like talking at the moment. It is not your time. He held up an hourglass. It was made of ebony, with a brass plaque engraved with my name affixed to the bottom of the frame. There was still sand in the top bulb. Yeah, uh, sorry. 
Despite being a walking skeleton, there somehow seemed to convey a sigh. I don't understand you mortals. Sometimes you have life, you have friends and family. You have the senses, you have glands. Why would you throw it away? I was at a loss. How do you explain depression to a guy who has exactly zero understanding of emotions? How do you explain pain to someone who's incapable of feeling it? I'd have an easier time teaching a goldfish algebra. I shrugged again. Um, I don't know how to explain it to you, sir. Death fingered his chin bone for a moment, pondering. Fair enough. He lowered his hand. You may dispense with the formality. I don't stand on ceremony. You can call me Bill. I smiled slightly at that. He'd used the name Bill Dor on one of his misadventures in the novels. Very well then, Bill it is. Tell me, if you can, why do you spend so much time here? It's peaceful, I met his case. Usually. I see. He indicated the desert around us. This is not the kind of peace humans usually seek. He had a point. The desert was the peace of the grave, cold, empty, eternal. Buying time to think, I dug out a cigarette, lit it, took a drag. Exhaling, I extended the pack to death. Want one? Might as well. It cannot hurt me. The last was delivered at a pointed look in my direction. I shrugged, offering him my lighter. No one ever said humans were the sharpest tools in the shed. True! He examined the lighter. I do find your species to be a rather clever, though. He lowered his hood and took a drag of the camel. Why do you, specifically, spend so much time here? I cannot qualify as polite company. You accept me as I am. You don't judge. It is not my place to judge, only to collect, as it were. Exactly. You don't expect anything from me. I thought about it. Well, one thing, eventually. But still, yes, in the end, I do expect to collect even from you. Right. Humans, though, uh, they expect everything, and I can't give it to them. Despite not having flesh, Death managed to look confused. I do not understand. I took a drag of my cigarette. I was trained to be a part of something larger than myself, a cog in a machine. I always knew my place, knew exactly what was expected of me. I was taught to nudge my peers back into line when they strayed from the straight and narrow. And I was taught to put the mission first, another drag. I was taught to kill. He motioned for me to continue. Then it was over, and I had to go back to being normal. I had to fit in. I had to be productive. I had to hold on my tongue when other people put themselves first. I finished my cigarette, pitched it to the sand, and I wasn't trained for any of that. It must be... Difficult. I laughed sardonically. <laughs> yeah, you have no idea. On top of all of that, I was born with a hidden handicap. 
My, my brain isn't quite right, right, sir. I can't focus like um, normal people can. I'm different. I spat the last words out like I'd bitten into something disgusting. I'm usually the smartest guy in any room I walk into, yet uh, it takes me three times as long to learn certain things as everyone else. Hell, I'm working three times as hard as anyone else would be just to concentrate on this conversation. I pulled out another cigarette, needing a distraction from the self-loathing bubbling inside me. I see. I think. I lit the cigarette, took a big drag, let the smoke out slowly. I fail at tasks the most humans find second nature. I'm 41 fecking years old, and I can't keep my fecking bills paid. And I don't fecking know why. I kicked at the sand in frustration. Death watched, waiting patiently for me to calm myself. When I finally regained some control, I turned back to him. I, uh, I just want to be functional. I don't even care about being normal. I just want to be a functional adult. Is that too much to ask? He shrugged. I cannot see. I nodded after a moment. Yeah. No. I guess you can't. I took a moment to finish my second cigarette, using the time to think. What I want most is the ability not to screw up everything I try to do by either forgetting something important, procrastinating, or simply not finishing it. That and, uh, to be able to not think for a while. That would be, uh, really, really nice. And yet you persevere. You do not give up. You keep trying. I snorted, my lips twisted into a bitter smile. Yeah, well, there's another bit of my training they drilled into me. Never surrender. Death before dishonor. No! Death shook his head. That is an inherent trait of humanity. You never quit. You never give up. You never stop fighting. Your kind simply do not quit trying. Yeah, that's us. I gave a bit of shake of my head. We just don't know when to quit, even when we really, really should. I threw my hands up in disgust. Humanity! Uh, fuck yeah. I find that to be humanity's most admirable trait. Your kind have walked on the moon, have harnessed the power of the atom, simple piles of metal, providing power for your entire society. Your medicine boggles the mind. Your surgeons can replace a man's defective heart with one taken from a dead man. And the patient lives. You sail the seas on ships of iron, powered by piles of radioactive metal. You construct buildings that scrape the sky and soar high above them in machines made of aluminium. You have sent a ship outside of your solar system, and how did you achieve all of this by refusing to surrender? Even now you refuse to quit. You and I could have met in my uh, official capacity many times over the past years. At a time of your choosing, yet you refuse. You keep fighting. Why? I'm ashamed to admit that I didn't have an answer for him. I shook my head, shrugged slightly. I'll tell you why. The one thing you humans have that sets you apart from every other living thing on your planet is the ability to look to the future and to hope. 
You see that, no matter how bad life is at the moment, there is always a very strong chance that the future will be better. You personally have placed that hope in your daughter. Hope that she will not have your disability. That she will avoid the mistakes you keep making. Hope that she will succeed where you fail. You even told her how to do that yesterday. You have postponed our official introduction for her. No other living thing in all of creation has the ability to plan for the distant future. To put the mechanisms into place to make the future a little better for its descendants. Only you humans. And even with your disability, you have that power. A power that is denied to me, I might add. Huh. When you put it that way, I trailed off, unable to finish the thought, and pulled out my cigarette pack and offered him another. I stood there and smoked with death in silence for a while, pondering his words. When we finished, I turned to him. Thank you, Bull. You've given me a lot to think about. Of course. It's about time for me to get going, I guess. Death nodded, hoofbeats started behind him. I turned to look and saw a white horse approaching across the desert sands. Death swung into the saddle. Until we meet again. I saluted. Maybe a long time coming. Somehow, Death smiled. Quite. He patted the horse's neck. Come, Blinky. Duty calls. They rode off across the desert, leaving me alone with my thoughts. I lit a final cigarette. As I smoked an ancient wooden door, its timbers iron-bound and blackened with age materialized before me. It swung open, revealing a cold, starlit night on the other side. The real world. The world outside my head. I finished my smoke, crushed it under my boot, and stepped through it, back into the land of the living. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1845 Story number one, Sakatuya, written by Lost War. Rick Peck found himself in a dire situation. His ship was currently being held by pirates, and he and his crew were locked in an empty cargo hold. They had nothing with them besides the clothes that they were wearing when boarded. How had this happened? The pirates boarded during the crew's sleep cycle. His suspicion was that Moby, the Fenny on sensor duty, had been sleeping too. If they got out of this alive, they were going to have a discussion about this. He had woken to find himself staring down the barrel of a plasma rifle. What is worse, they had been boarded by a pirate crew of Denari. They are a light-bodied avian race with hollow bones. They looked like a bunch of overgrown budgies, though appearing adorable and bit-bird-brained at times. They are known for their utter ruthlessness. Getting your ship hijacked by pirates is bad, but having a bunch of pirate parakeets do it was beyond embarrassing. Generally, this race was the butt of jokes, especially when people talked about them on pirate crews. The overgrown budgies kept at it because they had a few natural advantages in space, he mused. That is, when wicked inspiration hit him. So long as his ship and theirs were tied together, they were sharing the atmosphere. His ship actually had the stronger environmental control system. Half of his crew was human, including him. So he needed to be strong to handle their waste, skin, byproducts, and overall foulness. He turned and surveyed his crew, his eyes finally coming to rest on Norman Barman. Norman was an EVA and engine guy. 
He had been on ship captain at one point, but got in trouble over some diplomatic incident. He tended to be a disgusting individual who drank too much and made questionable decisions when drunk. Rick doubted there was anything the man could do that would shock him. Rick smiled as he realized Norman would be perfect. Norman, when did you do laundry last? The captain asked. He knew Norman was not the best about it. The guy either didn't notice the filth about him, didn't care, or used to keep it away the rest of the crew. Knowing Norman, it was likely all of the above. Fuck you, was Norman's response. Norman, I am serious here. When did you wash your clothes? Rick patiently asked him again. Damn it, Rick. You may be in charge of this tug, but if you ain't noticed, we've been imported by a bunch of fucking canaries. And now you're gonna start worrying about my hygiene. What are you, my mother? Afraid the damn undertaker gonna find I got a racing stripe? Okay. Everyone, when was the last time you washed your clothes? Rick plaintively asked. Everyone looked at him confused. A chorus of today and yesterday spelted in, to be broken by a week from Moby. Shaking his head, he waited to hear Norman. Quietly, Norman mutters something. Damn it, Norman. I'm trying to save us. Rick finally yells. Fine! Probably a little over a month, I think. Uh, how does that matter? Norman says. Rick just takes on an evil grin. This could actually work. See, Rick knew Norman had a problem with foot fungus from the ship's medical doctor. He knew this because the doctor complained non-stop about the smell of Norman's feet. Looking at Norman, Rick, with that wicked grin, May I have your socks? The entire crew is staring at this point. This just seemed insane. What could Rick possibly be planning with Norman's month-old dirty socks? Shaking his head, Norman began unbuckling his boots, pulling his foot out, everyone in the room immediately hit by the odor. Norman, I only need one, Rick quickly amended. Norman cast a glare at the captain. He peels off his sock. Dead skin and sweat still clung to the inside of it. It was a wool sock designed to go up to the mid-calf. But as Norman pulled it off and dropped it on the deck, it made an unnerving splop sound. The disgusting thing, moist with stored sweat, dead tissue, and smelling worse than a carcass in the middle of a summer in the tropics, it also had a disturbing and unexplained glow of blue and green upon it. Most of the crew at this point rushed to cover their noses. A few were gagging, not being quick enough. Moby was even complaining he could taste it. Poor, sensitive alien Rick, sarcastic thought. He moved across the cargo hold to pick up Norman's biological weapon, but just couldn't as the soggy, moist, smelly mass appeared to move and was triggering a gag reflex. Damn it, Norman. You're gonna have to handle this thing. How could you possibly have a sock this nasty? Well, I was wearing it when we visited Jalo, he said with a disgusting grin. Rick couldn't help but shiver. That was well over a month ago when Norman was captain. Going over to the ship's environmental control and life support system, the ECLSS, Rick pulled out all of the filters and the air control. Turning to the crew, he recommended everyone use one and hold it over their nose and mouth. With a nod, he turns to Norman. Drop it in, he says in a nasally voice, still holding his nose. It's not that bad. This isn't going to work. Norman mutters as he drops it in while shaking his head in disbelief. Moments later, they can hear muffled squawks coming from above. They had a sound of panic to them, 
They could hear the Denari pirates panic choke as they raced towards the cargo hold, desperate to get to the environmental controls. Rick and Norman were busy holding the door. The struggles, chirps, and pecking on the other side of the door kept getting weaker and weaker. Finally, the sound stopped, leaving only silence, and the sound of crew members gagging. Rick looked around and realized most of the non-human crew were hunched over, looking an unhealthy shade of green. He quickly told Norman to retrieve his vile sock and put his boot back on. Once the filters were back in place, they took a few minutes for the fresh air scrubbers to purify the cabin air and fresh air to start making its way into the room. When they opened the door, Rick was shocked to find the bodies of 14 Denari pirates piled outside the cargo hold doors. He heard Norman start laughing. How in the hell do you know that that will work, Rick? Shaking his head, Rick explained, The Denari have a couple of advantages in space over humans. Being an avian origin, they have lightweight bodies, which means Denari ships can carry larger crews, and they handle themselves well in zero-g environments. But their greatest advantage is also their biggest weakness. The Denari are the most efficient breathers in our galaxy. Norman looked at him blankly. Rick, in exasperation, clarifies. While this gives them a far greater advantage in air consumption over other species, it means bad air kills them quickly, like a canary in a coal mine. He was still chuckling about this later when it hit him. If he reported his ship was boarded without a struggle by parakeets, it was going to make them a laughingstock in the galaxy. So in a burst of creation of mission, Rick simply stated that during a pirate boarding, Norman Sock killed every pirate present. As he submitted his report, he couldn't help but chuckle. This means that Norman officially has the most badass Sock in the universe since it had 14 confirmed kills. End of story. Story number two. The 60-Year Sniper Duel, written by Adriel. Humanity has a bad habit of winning fights in really strange ways. I heard an old human proverb, something like, Creativity killed the cat, by crushing a space station into it. Or something like that. I keep getting different versions, the one involving the drum of butter and 350,000 watts of, uh... Never mind, um, I'm getting off tracks. Anyway... One story always stuck with me. It's the story of the 60-year sniper duel. Somewhere out in the middle of no man's land, many, many light years from anything important, two ships landed in system I'm quite confident no one has ever bothered to name. One human, one Zeno. They ended up landing on different planets. When I say landed, I mean they landed really fast. Explosions probably happened. One of those landings where you really hope your side of the ship doesn't hit first. Now the humans really hated their alien neighbors, shooting your ship down and making you live the rest of your life on some obscure chunk of ice is a good way to make new enemies. So, how does a group of angry humans enact their revenge on someone on a different planet with no chance of flying over there? Easy. Easy. You take apart your ship and build a nice giant gun, then... Every eight months or so, when the orbits are nice and close, you get a couple of shots off. Then you repeat a few hundred times until those filthy Xenos are nice and dead. Why am I telling you this? It just so happens that a human is in the other room. You try to mate with his wife, and that really pissed him off. Oh, and he just found the blender. Uh, good day. End of story.
Tales from Outer Space 1846. What are the humans doing? Written by Eclipse Shadow. Welcome back to What Are the Humans Doing? The galaxy's favorite show for the past four cycles. Audience cheering. And here's your host for our four cycle anniversary special, Tom Flagnall. Intro music plays. As the audience cheers louder, Tom ends. Thank you, thank you very much. Welcome to tonight's four cycle anniversary episode of What Are the Humans Doing? I am Tom Flagler, and let's start some classic clips. First clip plays of a human child holding a rather colorful tube, aiming it at a rather tall adult human in the distance. Ah, nothing like relaxing and having some fun at a festival. The tube begins to smoke, and out from it, with a loud bang and a bright colorful ball, flies out and smacks the adult in the groin. Audience laughter. <laughs> Whoa there, champ! Careful where you aim that! Next clip plays of a human playing a VR game. Another human slowly walks by. Ah, VR sports, the best way to make someone look like a fool flailing around. Audience chuckles. Human playing then suddenly ducks down and delivers a swift jab to the other's gut, followed by doing a backflip into a wall. Just be sure you have the space for one. <laughs> then we see a common earth cat waking up grouchy with a smaller kitten bopping its nose, only for the adult cat to bop it right back over the head. More laughter. The televised feed cuts back to Tom. All right, so for our next set of clips, well, uh, there are some special clips which make everyone ask, why would you do that? Let's start. The clip starts playing, showing Mars from orbit. Then a beam of light strikes the planet, and again. Then a prolonged beam slowly draws a small semicircle below two dots. After the light stops, there's a small smile drawn in laser on the surface of Mars. Now here's a sign that you've got nothing better to do and way too much time and money to spend. Why do this? Our laser artist simply had this to say. Because my boss said that I couldn't, so I did it anyways to prove him wrong. Next video shows a Rivali and a human woman arguing over a man. Tom. Now, guys, if you've got two women arguing nearby, don't do what this guy does. Ladies, ladies, don't worry about it. You're both ugly to him anyways, the bystander says. Then the two stop arguing and beat up the random stranger, the human folding him in a full Nelson while the Rivali delivered a rather swift kick to the groin. Roaring laughter. A loud crunch is heard from the impact, and the video cuts back to Tom shortly after the guy's yelp. Pain. Now for some of my personal bloopers. Times where I had some rather unfortunate blunders. Another clip reel starts of various accidents in sports and other physical activities. Where the humans who get injured has Tom's head pasted over their head, reacting in an overly comical fashion. Starting with a human trying to do a skateboard stunt, grinding on a rail only for the board to slip out from under them. Then we had a human run up towards the wall before doing a flip off of it and running in a different direction, followed by Tom trying to do that flip, only to be land on his head. Then we have a kid playing baseball with the Tom. The pitch is thrown and the kid strikes the ball and nails Tom right in the gut. Lastly is a video of Tom playing basketball only to jump too high when trying to slam dunk and smacking his face into the backboard before landing flat on his back, with the ball going through the hoop and falling square on his garage. 
Tom then walks forward on the stage and says, Now this next clip, our feature presentation, comes straight from the front lines of the war with the Cargarians. From one recently promoted Christopher Shepard. Loud cheering. The feed turns on and shows a hybrid riding on the back of a dragonoid in full FTL gear. The duo fly onto the planet near a castle. Shepard jumps off and starts sneaking inside the castle, slowly sneaking up the guard. In one fell swoop, he leapt over the guard and wrapped both hands around his helmet. With a swift spin, he practically unscrews the guard's head and helmet off his body. Audience oohs and ahs. He hides the body inside a nearby laundry cart and moves on with his head in hand. Noticing that nearby guard, he throws the head into the waste bin near that guard, causing him to turn and investigate the noise. The guard is then stabbed in the back of the neck and dumped right in the bin as well. Shepard continues walking along until he finds a maintenance room. He slips in and finds a hatch for the air vent. Crawling slowly through the vent, he begins to hear someone talking. I don't care who they sent. I want them found and killed. As he approaches the opening, he soon sees a fat Calgarian noble shouting at his subordinates, This is Chris. In position. Blow the gates up. Tenfall, be ready to rendezvous on the roof. A loud explosion can be heard shaking the entire building. That must be them. Stop them now. Everyone go stop the damn alliance dogs. The rotund noble bellows. The guards scurry out of the room and head towards the sound. Chris quietly cuts a hole in the vent while the noble was yelling. After the guards leave, he slowly descends from the hole and sneaks up behind the noble with a knife in one hand and a note in the other. The moonlight boxes and their regards. The knife suddenly is thrust into the back of his head and the note is left in his sizable belly. The camera zooms up on the noble's face and pauses. Tom. Denark Jetshaw, the ruthless noble responsible for the genocide of Halsa Prime. Finally taken down. Good riddance. The audience cheers. Now let's see the daring escape. Video resumes as Chris draws out his katana and cuts a hole in the wall behind the throne, directly into the treasury. He runs through it, grabbing a few nice-looking artifacts and a ring before leaping onto a rather fancy jewel-encrusted statue. With two well-aimed slashes, he cuts a hole in the roof and leaps out. The alarm blares as the debris breaks the secure glass box. Guards are running all over the place trying to fight him. But Shepard finds them before they see him and effortlessly runs down the guards as he makes his way to the stairwell. Ascending the stairs, he then says, Target down, moving to escape. Jeez, you stirred up a hive down there. As he arrives on the roof, he doesn't see the Koyu anywhere. Where are you? Southside, jump. Trust me. As he approaches the edge, the guards are swarming the location. Stop! We have you surrounded. There is no way out, Devil Fox. Now surrender and we'll be merciful and give you a swift death. Chris simply stands on top of the wall's edge while facing them, then smirks and says, Let this be known as the day you almost caught me. As he finishes that sentence, he slowly falls backwards and is whisked away by the soulless Kiryu who, after securing him into the pilot seat of her FTL gear, then flies off, and the video ends as they leave the planet. Loud uproar of cheering. Tom. Now that I don't know about you, but that was something else. Who thinks that'd make for a great spy film? Audience shouts. Yeah! 
Well now, as we draw to the end of our program today, we have three more very special clips for you to see. The first of the three clips begins with Chris and Solus in her humanoid form playing a dancing game at an arcade. While both are singing about being a modern major general, holding light guns in each other's hands and shooting their sights. Camera slowly zooms out, showing the two aren't just playing a dancing game, but also have a two shooter games on the sides and a karaoke machine beside the dancing game. Tom then says, And this is how they train for missions, apparently. The duo begin to start dancing with each other, doing the tango while still singing and shooting. The dance ends with both of them setting a high score in the dancing game, and the camera pans out to show they beat both shooting games, one a zombie mansion game, and the other a military shooter. The camera stops on the karaoke machine, showing they had yet another high score. Audience cheers. Second clip begins with four soldiers at boot camp, one trying sit-ups, but has a towel over his face. Towel gets removed. He tries to do a sit-up, but fails part way. Tom then chuckles and says, Ah, I remember boot camp. Second soldier tries the same result. Third one tries same result. Fourth one lies down and gets the towel over his face. The first soldier holds out a fist. Towel gets removed. Soldier. Immediately shoots up doing his setup. Head hits the first right in the nose. Other three soldiers start laughing. Audience laughs. But sometimes you just need to be vigilant for when you're about to be hazed. The final clip starts of a human lifting weights with a mirror behind him. He struggles with his 200-pound dumbbell before shooting up and holding above his head and slowly stumbling back. The dumbbell falls out of his hand and onto the foot. He lets out an owl before falling into his mirror, causing it to fall, much to the audience's amusement. Catchy theme music plays as the show ends, showing a quick highlight reel. And remember, if you want your videos featured on What Are The Humans Doing, submit them to... End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1847 Story number one. The humans are coming. Written by Rebel Hero. This is a Nature of Predators fanfiction and a standalone story. Memory transcript subject, Talok, citizen of Nishtal. Date, standardized human time, November 8th, 2136. We have made a grave mistake. When I say we, I mean our leaders. Our deranged ambassador, Drillium, heckled the human representative known during his entire plea for peace at the Federation Conference. Instead of being thrown out like any sane beings would have done, he was allowed to continue and fan the flames of hatred with his own wings. He was allowed to incite the other representatives to the frothing rage and even began a fight. A fight! In the halls of the conference, it was like everyone had forgotten that predators had no need for false friendship. Predators do not pretend to be a friend, then kill you. They simply kill you. Because they are hungry, or they are in their territory, or are too close to their children. The protest began almost immediately. We had all seen the data dump Governor Tarver had released. The tests the Vendel ran that the humans eagerly agreed to. We watched the footage of the humans, strapped to chairs, eliciting a wide range of emotions to the footage of the Arxor killing children. Rage, fear, disgust, shock horror, and pain. They felt pain when they saw those children die. Their brains lit up 
like fireworks. Many of us set aside time to read the books the humans had shared and found startlingly deep philosophy. We looked at their cities, their artwork, their cultures. So many cultures, thousands of different cultures for a single species on just one planet. It boggled the mind. How did they keep all of it straight? No wonder they had struggled so much with unity. With that struggle for unity came war. Humans did not try to hide their walls from us. They documented it well, in incredible detail. Even some of their ancient wars were meticulously recorded. Not only the battles were recorded, but also the effects that had on the world. They documented good and bad, heroes and monsters. That data dump bared all for us. The humans just wanted to be seen as they were, truthfully. There was a clip, a small grainy video of an elderly human talking about the advice his mother gave him when he was a child. But I was a boy, and I would see scary things in the news. My mother would say to me, Look for helpers. You will always find people who are helping. This seems to be how humans operated. No matter what cruelty or tragedy, natural or man-made, there were always humans who sought to help. Footage of volunteers clearing rubble to rescue trapped animals, citizens running covered in blood, carrying their more wounded citizens to safety. Many running back towards the danger to try and save more people. One video struck with me particularly hard. A man clearly in distress, facing back and forth outside a burning building. The uniformed men near him are shouting for him to get back. But the man keeps pointing at the building and yelling, He's still in there! He's still in there! Finally, the man seems to hear something and sprints into the smoke and fire. The uniformed men around the camera exclaim in horror. Nothing happens for a minute. Then suddenly the man returns from the smoke, his garments on fire, coughing and stumbling. He returns upright long enough to pass off a small four-legged animal before collapsing into the grass. The men around him put out a small fires while the man cries in obvious pain. He is my best friend. I, I couldn't just leave him. I, I would rather have died. The man says weakly as the uniformed men berate him on how dangerous that move was. More recent footage from the human invasion on the Gojit Cradle shows much the same. Even though mere hours ago the humans were killing the Gojit, when the Oxor arrived, the humans grabbed who they could and ran. Many human soldiers threw themselves at the Oxor to give their fellows and the goated survivors time to escape. Dying human soldiers could be seen still holding their ground to protect the goated in their care. I'm not too proud to admit that I wept openly at the footage. As more of us watched the footage and read the files, the protests increased in intensity. Counter-protests started from those in support of the human extermination, but those of us who believed humans should be spared outnumbered them heavily. It wasn't long before the violence started. Protests became riots as the government ignored us. Riots were met with armed resistance from government forces. 
We watched as the people were elected turned on us, treated us like we were the villains. But in the end, our fight was futile. The extermination fleet launched. The next day, we received the footage of Captain Calsum talking to a dying human pilot. The human was wounded, and it was clear that he was going to die, and he knew it. He didn't threaten, or beg, or gloat. All he did with his final moments was remind the galaxy that he was human, a person with a family and children, and that the only thing he feared was their extermination. His last words were a plea. Please, stop this. Captain Calsum did not stop. The humans and their venal allies stood in defense of Earth. It was a pitiful showing. The extermination fleet of thousands against the humans who had barely spacefaring, and the venal who had almost no military might. But they fought, and they lost. Even with the arrival of the Zeridians, they were no match. Then something happened that no one expected. The Arxor came. They came to the defense of humanity. They treated the Zeridians and Vendel as allies and laid waste to the extermination fleet. But even the Arxor could not stop the bombs from falling. I watched in horror as a billion humans were vaporized in an instant. How many more would die of injuries? or hunger, or unrest after that. I watched as the places we had seen in the human movies were wiped off the map. I grieved for the people as rage of my leaders burned to my chest. I thought of my own family, burning in the fires of bombs dropped from ignorance, fear, and prejudice. I had seen the worlds ravaged by the Arxor, the cities reduced to rubble and glass, corpses scattered, as far as the eyes could see. Then Earth looked no different. Then made the Federation just as bad as our oldest enemy. There was a truth I refused to live with. Then, a transmission of Earth. To the people of planet Earth, who have been preyed upon by unreasonable enemy, I know you are grieving the innocent blood that has been spilled this week. You feel hurt and anger. For the loved ones taken away too soon. I share every scrap of your pain. What I want you to know is that humanity will endure. And that we are not alone. Not only do we have each other. But we have friends who stand with us. The Zerillians and the Vendel fought with us. And gave us back a sliver of optimism for the better life amongst the stars. The Arxor came to our aid. When we thought that they were our enemy, and we learned that their people once suffered under Federation injustice too. It is time to unite with everyone who believes in our ideals, to stand as a single species with a single purpose. Together we will rise, relentless in the face of injustice. We will bring our enemies and our prosecutors to their knees. If it takes a millennia to rectify these atrocities, humanity calls for atonement. For our right to exist. When we are done, the galaxy shall know why we are the Apex. The transmission was leaked from their internet, and it filled me with dread. They would seek atonement 
Our worlds would burn because of the incompetence of our leaders. I couldn't even blame the humans, but they were not the only ones who sought to make things right. We now arm ourselves to fight back against the leaders who betrayed us, who lied to us and fed us fear. The humans are coming, and I, for one, would rather fly at their side. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1848. Story number one. Don't call them Terran. Written by Led Azide. 221. The two Spectalians stood at the landing platform, waiting for it to descend. The superior turned to his subordinate. He had something to say before they met with the humans. Whatever you do, don't call them Terran. The subordinate's visor buzzed and flashed with curiosity. Why not? I've read their literature. They've always referred to themselves as Terrans. The superior's visor flickered with amusement. Yes, in pirated First Age literature taken from the pockets of the first comma corpses, that was long, long ago. The superior then looked at his multiple tentacles as if trying to get his mind off something. They, uh, certainly did change after the Croson Wars. The supportant uttered a scornful noise. What? It's not like the Croson ever used discriminatory mutagen agents. Yes, but I'm sure that being barraged with an NBC material for years and end will change anyone's psych some. No? Just as the superior finished talking, the platform finally started to descend. Waiting for them was a lone-skinned soldier in a signature full-body armor. The superior noticed its design was a bit different than what he remembered. It was more refined and had more material. As the ship's landing platform reached the metallic floor, the Lonksen soldier began to greet the Spectalians. Welcome to the federal state of Longsk, Longsk's planet of the humans. We hope you'll find your visit to be only the most exceptional. The Lonskin soldier then motioned towards the skyscraper entrance. Come, let us go in, lest the strong winds blow someone off towards the most distressing death. The Spectalians followed the Lonskin soldier towards the skyscraper. The subordinate simulated a coughing noise with his visor. The Lonskin soldier took notice and stopped walking. You have a disease. The Lonskin soldier turned his head around. Or do you really want to ask us a question before the meeting? Ah, uh, a question. The subordinate quickly clarified. He heard rumors of what the humans do to those they deemed unsanitary. Well, what is it? The subordinate took a few moments before asking his question. Why did you address your nation as the federal state of Lonsk? You, you always used to address it as just Lonsk to our previous diplomats. The Lonskin soldier relaxed a bit. Oh, that. Very long, short story. The war that unified the peoples ended, and that meant the peoples didn't have to be united as well. The Lonskin soldier turned around and walked towards the skyscraper entrance once again. The FSL is still big enough that calling it just Longsk is fine. But to respect countries that succeeded from us, some refer to us as the FSL instead of the Lonsk now. The superior was shocked. Territories seceding usually meant a total collapse of all Spectalian civilizations. Spectalians were either united together or in complete anarchy. They reached the entrance and the Lonskin soldier motioned them to enter first. The Spectalians entered, 
A grand reception hall was laid out before them. Old-style chandeliers hung from the ceiling. The walls were adorned with neon wall screens, papers, and bulletin boards. The floor was completely made out of glass, revealing the floor below them. Many humans could be seen below, each walking in various directions. The Lonskin soldier then motioned them to follow him through one of the many hallways, and their spectalions oblige. Wanting to follow up on the Lonskin soldier said before, the superior began to speak. If there are multiple states on the planet, wouldn't that cause immense hostility and tension? The Lonskin soldier shrugged. Maybe, but they're happier now than before. At that moment, the wall screen to the left of them flashed and an adver advertisement for the state of the Free Fontas forces. It showed a clean, sunny beach, a rarity on a planet Longsk, as well as a beautiful, tanned and smiling girl in a slave collar and shackles holding an oddly colored drink in her hands. Why she was smiling was anyone's guess. She also wasn't wearing any NBC gear. A rare sight indeed. The Lonskin soldier began to speak again. Okay, maybe not happier. The Lonskin soldier continued to walk without further comment. Finally, they approached the room where the meeting was supposed to take place. The Lonskin soldier opened the door revealing many humans wearing NBC gear, like the Lonskin soldier, sitting in chains. All of them turned towards the door. I believe this is where you all and I part. The Spectalians entered through the door and waved the soldier goodbye. The soldier waved goodbye back and began to close the door, but then he stopped and said something in a serious tone. He's right. Don't call us Terrence. The subordinate froze in fear. The superior stood in shock. The superior was about to ask how he heard them. Huh? Why? interrupted the subordinate. Is it a slur or something? No. Nothing like that. It's just Terrans and Furs that we live on Terra, or, as we now commonly call it, Earth. Earth? asked the superior. Where's that? A faraway planet lost to time. But that doesn't matter anymore. Lonsk is our home now. We're Lonskin, not Earthlings or Terrans or whatever. Lonskin. The Lonskin soldier then closed the door. The Spectalians turned around to the people sitting at the table. One was tapping his fingers on the table. She dressed ostentatiously with brilliant white, sparkling gems covering her clothes. Well, she said, as a representative of the FFF, let me be the first one to welcome you Spectalians here. The superior walked to her and shook her hand with one of his many tentacles. And let me be the first Spectalian to greet the Lonskin for her the first time since the Second Croson War. The representative retracted her hand. Please, refer to us as the Fontan, not the Lonskin. Ah, yes, I see. As the superior attempted to once more to shake her hand, the subordinate still stood in place, thinking to himself, I'm going to have to remember a lot of country's history, culture, mannerisms and other shit, aren't I? It's like encountering multiple species at this point. End of story. Story number two. Their truth is marching on. Written by British Tea Company. If I must choose between righteousness and peace, I choose righteousness. Following the grisly and public execution of Agent Owen Torrington for numerous acts of terrorism and attempted insurrection within the Istran Empire, the Solar Alliance finally decided that enough was enough. On April 15, 2361, 
They massive armada of human ships pushed straight into the heart of the Istran Empire, destroying several key forces and military stations within the first few months of engagement. The Istran Empire would find itself fighting for its very existence in the twilight years as humanity finally dissolved their government. What had prompted the human race to act in aggression during this period? What exactly was it about the Istran which had agitated humanity so much that they were busy funding terrorist cells throughout the Empire for several years on end before finally deciding that they were going to roll up their sleeves and dismantle the Empire themselves? Well, the answer is simple. There is a practice within the Empire which the human race finds abominable. There is a long-lived tradition within the Istran which causes the human to fume at the very thought of its existence, a cultural ideology in which the anathema to everything the human race holds dear, the notion of unfreedom, its allowed existence, and its encouragement and continuation in something the humans cannot abide by, slavery, the antithesis to the ideas of liberty which the humans staunchly stand by, was something they refused to tolerate. After so many years of trying to peacefully talk the Istran people into outlawing such a disgusting practice, the human people found their patience at the end. If justice could not be preserved around the table of dialogue, it will be enforced through the barrel of a gun. The Istran slaves were liberated, many of them having been prisoners of war and abducted hostages from various other civilizations which gratefully welcomed the return of their people. Mere months following the Istran Empire's ultimate collapse, the humans made an announcement to all civilized races of the galaxy. Throughout their time on the galactic stage, they had found that injustice and oppression had grown fat and unmolested by good countries of the galaxy. This was to stop immediately. Dozens of civilizations had their name written down on a blacklist which humanity had found to hold unfit governments. They were to either change their ways or adopt the human ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or face the terrible sword of human justice. Some were wise and chose to agree to such terms. Some weren't, and had their worlds feel the power of the human war machine. Millions of tons of ordnance delivered in the name of liberty for all the shattered hulls of countless ships across the galaxy as the faithful lighting of the human justice broke the backs of the tyrants. Some would grow to hate humanity for their proactive nature in enforcing the ideals throughout the galaxy. Yet, to the oppressed, to the enslaved and the broken, the majestic roar of human fighters patrolling overhead with the distant sound of boots landing on the ground, with the music of freedom fast approaching. The din and chaos of humanity fighting the battles of the helpless and the oppressed was a war cry for those who had lost their voice. End of story. I would quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and Patreons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barky, Lord Azrakal, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Dragzoon, WRE, Holly's Sister, Arcadian. Thank you very much.